so, so we should try to... Oh, uh, you, you extended our notes a lot. Uh, well, I just pasted in everything we didn't get to from episode two. I didn't really add much new stuff. Uh, I just put, put stuff in a more convenient place so we didn't have to keep flipping back and forth. Okay. I decided I could open it on my iPad and not annoy you with typing. Ooh. Um, I... Oh, I do have that. Truly. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, Did it just occur to you that you also own an iPad? Uh, well, not only that, but that it happened to be within arm's reach, so... Uh, I, yeah, so, to be fair, that's why I opened it on mine also. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, just to let you know, so in order to enable... Um, enable, like, using... Well, actually, this is not so true. But uh, I, I'm also coming into the bedroom. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, if only I had a sound effects of crickets. I must have that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, we, we can insert them later. The sound, not the actual <laughs> That's crickets. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you, oh. um, but, um, what, what was I going to say? <laughs> Uh, no, are, oh, are there it, crickets in Malaysia? I do hear them. Yeah, uh, not not so much. I mean, there are many insects. Our department is is overrun with them actually uh, a lot of the time, but not not, not so much crickets. Are they like the creepy giant tropical ones? Uh, I haven't seen a cricket up close. The cockroaches get pretty big. Yeah, I remember the cockroaches in Bermuda were enormous. Yeah, like walking Twinkies. <laughs> uh, you just put me off Twinkies for a while. I thought they didn't make Twinkies anymore. Did that company ever come back? I think someone bought the trademark. Was it you? It was not me. Um, but I think they have appeared back again, but I'm not sure. That could just be the backlog of Twinkies, actually. Uh, although, you know, this, is, this, this can actually be real science. Um, although we should introduce ourselves in a minute. But um, you know that whole thing about Twinkies lasting forever is completely false, right? No, I didn't actually. I mean, I just assumed that they were sort of dry and sugary, both which make things last for a long time. And Well, yeah, this is a real, um, this is kind of a real thing I have. A, a, this is a rant of mine, which I guess we could do. Which All right, cue the rant. Well, just that, uh, I mean, people talk about Twinkies like they're some magical, you know, future food with full of preservatives and stuff. And I'm sure they have some preservatives in them, but if you look at the ingredients, Twinkies really are just cake um, and, you know, sugar-based filling. There's nothing magical about them, and they're, you know, shrink-wrapped in plastic to keep microorganisms out. It's not, it really isn't rocket science. They have a shelf life of like a couple of weeks, just like any old piece of bread does. Really? No. They, well, I guess you mean once they're open? No, I mean, they have a, well, I mean, I've not scientifically tested this, but... Um, you know, if you look on the side of the box, they have a, you know, a sell-by date of a couple of weeks from whatever time it is at that time, usually. And, oh, really? Yeah, and much like actual bread, I assume, you know, the main thing that would happen if you ate them after that is they would just be stale. But they're not some, you know, and, and it is true that they are sealed in, you know, a relatively sterile environment. So not much can get to them. You know, unlike your regular bread, which... Uh, yeah, it's just sort of in a bag. It's in plastic, but yeah, there's not much keeping like the mold spores out. So, you know, there's nothing... I, I'm sure there are preservatives in Twinkies. I have not looked at the actual recipe recently, but uh, I definitely heard like, you know, uh, at some point I came upon a Twinkie representative going like, I don't... It's really just bread and sugar. I mean, it's not really yeah. good for you, but it's not... It's not going to like outlast the, uh, you know, 
the cockroaches in the when the nuclear apocalypse comes. So I, I just Googled it, and uh, yeah, there's there's only one actual preservative apparently, which is sorbic acid. Sorbic acid? Yeah, not. But that's not you know like industrial strength bleach or anything. No. It's funny because there's all these like panicky things like oh my god it comes from rocks and natural gas, which is I think just because the Twinkie ingredients have carbon in them. Yeah. Well, this is my whole uh, thing. You know, this is, you know, what they they have a name for this, and it's the naturalistic fallacy, right? There's really two parts of this. One of which is that Twinkies don't actually have many more uh, quote unquote artificial ingredients than the bread that you would bake, you know, at home by with your hands. Uh, wow, it's only uh, because I can't get a help, can't get a hold of like some of these things. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you do look at the Twinkie recipe, right, it's mostly like flour, sugar, probably has some eggs in it, water, baking soda, you know. Uh, yeah, or, you know, it has like the active ingredients of all those. Whoa, Twinkies were initially banana flavored? Yeah, I think they still have the banana flavored ones, actually, but uh, regular cream is much more popular now. I would totally try a banana one. Have you ever had a fried one? Not only have I had a fried one, I think I, did we do that in my... Well, you didn't come to the deep frying party that I had that one time, did you? I think you were otherwise uh, dis- disposed, weren't you? Anyways, they're delicious. Uh, you should eat them. Except you will die. It's funny, because if you didn't tell people it was a Twinkie, you could probably pass it off as a very classy dessert. Well, this is the other thing. Uh, this is another whole rant I have, which is um, the rarity of food. Like, you know, the illusion that... Um, some fancy restaurant food is better tasting than, uh, I don't know what, what you would want to say, like a Big Mac or something like that. Like, I agree that fancy restaurant food is also very tasty, but, you know, they have top men working on making the Big Mac as tasty as possible for the price point it is. So, oh, definitely. I, I, you know, if the Big Mac were the rare item, and I was actually just thinking this the other day because I went somewhere that we had creme brulee, and I was thinking... Creme brulee is actually very simple, right? Um, if this were commonly available, you know, would it be as fancy sounding as, as it is? Well, it's funny you say that because everything sounds fancy up here because it's in French. Then you realize that it's actually just like, like poutine is really just French fries, cheese and gravy, yeah. which are delicious. But it's sort of weird to see a whole like, oh, you must try this. It's got fried things and cheese. Yeah. Well, this is the other, by the way, and you know, creme brulee just literally means, doesn't it mean burnt cream? I think that's what brulee means. Um, so, you know, nothing too fancy about it, right? It's just cream and sugar and stuff. Uh, there might be some eggs in there. Well, yeah, that, they're, but you know, the same things that are in all tasty sweet things, basically, right? In different proportions. Yeah, that's fair enough. But, uh, oh, what was it? Shoot. I, I, <laughs> hold on, I have to reboot the system. There was a glitch in the matrix. Uh, oh, well, you know, there are only so many basic tastes that, you know, we like the taste of fat. We like umami. We like sugar. Uh, you know, we like salt in the right ways. And there are various ways of delivering those to you, but uh, it's not really too hard to make a thing that tastes good to humans, you know? Yeah, no, that, well, depends on who's cooking. <laughs> well, yeah. But in other, in other words, like, I mean, poutine is delicious. And creme brulee is delicious, and, uh, you know, Big Macs are delicious, and, you know, fancy pants food is also delicious, but, uh, you know, there are lots of studies showing that people prefer things 
that they have paid more money for, right? Like they will, if something is presented to them as more expensive or if they have actually paid more money for it, they do perceive it as being better as the same, you know, versus the same thing at a lower price point. Oh yeah, there's a cool study where they do that with wine, where they basically swap the bottles around and, you know, people are like, oh, this this expensive wine is delicious. Like, oh, it's actually two buck chuck. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's funny because actually just before you dialed in, I was looking at an article one of many articles over the years that I've seen, just yet another one saying like wine tasting is basically completely useless. Now, I haven't read this particular one because uh, we started the call just as I was loading it up. But, you know, many, many studies over the years show that a lot of people, even who claim to be experts, not only can't tell good wine from bad wine sometimes in blindfolded taste tests or are easily tricked by swapping the labels. But, you know, if you just add red food coloring to white wine, they sometimes can't even tell the difference between red and white wine. So, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they will some, you know, now wine people whose business it is to sound important about wine and, you know, try to sell you more wine, uh, will dispute these studies on various grounds. But yeah, I mean, they've done this with, uh, I believe it's called Winology. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but you know, the science of wine tasting, uh, they've done it with students in wine tasting and, wine reviewers and stuff, and uh, even experts uh, supposedly can't even really tell red from white under under double-blind type conditions. Do you know the orange juice experiment, which is sort of, sort of related to that? No, what's that one? So they took these people, right, and uh, they put them in a little room where they could control the lights very carefully, yeah. and they gave them a glass of orange juice. And, you know, people drink it, they're like, oh, this is, this is good orange juice. Yep. Uh, except the lights were set up so that the orange juice was actually dyed blue. <laughs> okay. And I guess you just don't have any blue in your lights, right? So it, it still looks orange. Right. And so people, so then they turn on the lights, or turn off the lights, however. They yeah. change the lights, and the orange juice appears blue. And like people are all of a sudden revolted. I think they got people to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> any study where you can uh, make people vomit by participating, I usually chalk up to a success. It's true, uh, as opposed to, you know, the reviews you get, which make you want to vomit. Well, yeah. Yes, that usually comes at a later stage. So this is um, ironic and hilarious. That's called revising and resubmitting your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So I was trying to track down the, the Twinkie ingredients, and there's yeah. this photographer guy who seems like sort of a scaremongery type. Yep. You know, he, apparently these ingredients are also used in sheetrock, shampoo, and rocket fuel. Um, one of them is cellulose gum, which is in like basically every plant ever. Right. And presumably the backing of sheetrock. But anyways, so he has a website where he's photographed each of the ingredients. Right. Except it's broken. And the only ingredient that shows up when you click on all 37 of them is a picture of flour. <laughs> nice. So there's definitely flour in there. God forbid. Apparently 37 different kinds of flour. Uh, for Twinkies? Well, no, it's supposed to show you, oh. like, sugar and all the oh. preservatives. Oh, okay, right. Oh, I see. They just all show up as flour. Yes. Okay. Um, that's funny. Well, and, um, yeah, I mean, this is this is the huge problem I have, which uh, I was starting to say, like, you know, that's the naturalistic fallacy, right? That, um, you know, that things are better, if, better for you if they are natural. Arsenic is natural. Well, exactly. Hemlock, pretty natural, right? Uh, all kinds of poisonous things, quite natural. No, no, it was boiled and put in a cup by a big, big tree. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, um, that, that is true. That is 
I guess there's some processing there. Uh, clearly, it's the processing that makes the hemlock kill you. If you just oh, you definitely know, eat the plant, you're totally fine. Um, you know that uh, that long running debate uh, between Skelly and her friend, right? No. Oh, this is this is well. All right. Oh, is this is this bread nature's napkin? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> which is a great story that I love to tell on her behalf. Um, we should get Skelly on the podcast at some point, actually. But anyway, for the for the benefit of our eh, redo, for the benefit of our listeners, basically, uh, our friend Lori Skelly, fellow uh, neuroscientist, I think this was in high school. Her friend was eating something and got like a little sauce or something on his, you know, on his cheek or on his lip and uh, didn't have an actual napkin with him. So he picked up a piece of his bread that he was, you know, came with his spaghetti or whatever and wiped it off his face and went, ah, bread, nature's napkin. Which, of course, because she's skelly, provoked her to say, well, you know, bread is really no more natural than a napkin. You, you have to mix it with other, you mix the wheat with other things and pound it and bake it and, you know, so forth, uh, which is somewhat similar to the process that, uh, you know, tree fibers go through when they're being made into napkins. And thus began a years-long debate, uh, which I gather involved, you know, a fair bit of research uh, as to which was actually more natural, bread or a napkin. <laughs> so Yeah, I remember like, that's come up within the last year, I think, on, on Facebook. Oh, between uh, us and Skelly? I don't um, even think we were involved. I think it was some other person. Oh, somebody else raised the, the bread versus napkin issue. <laughs> well, it is an interesting debate, right? Because the bread feels like, you know, you think bread, what's more natural than bread? But, you know, bread is a processed food, just like anything else. Merely baking something is processing it. Hmm. Um, but, you I don't know, have any deep thoughts on that, sorry. Well, no, that's okay. But just getting back to the, the basic rant, I mean, you know, and then things that are, lots of things that are not natural are very good for you also, right? Like... Plenty of medications are not so natural. Those are kind of good for you in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing is, right, like, uh, the one that kills me always is monosodium glutamate. Uh, MSG, right? Monosodium glutamate. It doesn't pass the blood-brain barrier. Sorry. Well, right, because people think something... I mean, it's true that MSG... Well, in a sense, MSG is not natural in, in the sense that when you add it to your food as, like, a, you know, sprinkle it on your food like salt, yeah, it's been processed in some way to get it into the salt shaker, but uh, so has salt for that matter, right? Well, it's funny you say that because I've, I've heard, and I'm not totally sure if this is true, that the part of the MSG which is bad for you is not the glutamate, which everyone says messes with your brain, but the fact that you're also adding a whack load of salt to your food. Yeah, although uh, we're, we're already too many, uh, too many layers deep, but you know, there's a lot of uh, research coming out now or a lot of uh, competing viewpoints coming out saying that sodium is not actually all that responsible for hypertension. I don't know if you've seen any of that. Oh, do you remember we tried to figure this out our first year of grad school, whether it was just like changes in the ion concentration? Uh, I don't remember trying to figure that out, but it sounds like something we would do. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw this poster and basically everything affects your blood pressure. Like everything. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like a poster sized poster with a bunch of arrows and lines labeled in like six point font. Yeah. I kind of want to get a copy. It was amazing in terms of just like, huh. Well, it makes it, and I believe if, so again, I, this is a longer topic and I haven't done the research recently enough to be eloquent about it, but you know, it sort of makes sense. Now, now some people that are predisposed to hypertension, 
Uh, it is certainly true, right, that uh, if you eat more salt, your, your system will generally retain more uh, water to get the, get the sodium concentration kind of in balance, right? Yeah. And, and that's where the blood pressure issue comes from, right, is that you're, you know, you are retaining more fluid in your, in your bloodstream overall. Uh, but as these researchers who contest this viewpoint would say, you do have kidneys. Uh, they're pretty good at filtering things out of your blood so as to maintain the optimal balance of, of things, right? So, you know, it's, it's not like uh, you have no way of compensating when you eat, eat a truckload of salt, right? Well, I mean, we're both still alive. <laughs> right. Um, and I, again, I, I think the jury's still out on exactly to what extent it's true, but it does seem like unless you are genetically predisposed to have hypertension and you, and you want to artificially cut um, your salt intake to just to like take away any source that of anything that could even temporarily raise your blood pressure. I can't, I wish I could find the study. Maybe I can find it again offline where they basically showed that even several times the normal human salt intake didn't really increase uh, hypertension, I believe it was in rats. And furthermore, that uh, it's actually impossible to healthily meet the uh, some of the guidelines for salt and or for sodium intake. That actually you can't eat even like a well balanced diet and keep your sodium intake as low as it's sometimes recommended to be. Yeah, the the new ones where they basically tell you to eat you know like thirty percent less salt. I think you can't get the right amount of potassium in that. Or oh, that, like that's what it was. That's what that's exactly what it was. Like if you the way that you know these things are present in foods. Yeah, if you eat as little sodium as they recommend, you actually get less potassium than you're supposed to get, which is a problem unto itself. Yeah, it's actually weird. Do you know how they do this? It's just like a massive linear programming thing. How they do what exactly? Like, so they try to figure out, you know, like a, a diet. Right. Oh, yeah. Especially for like astronauts. They just have this like huge set of equations and they solve them. But I read somewhere the initial models didn't really work because they're just like you should eat. I think it was potatoes. You should eat like... 10 pounds of potatoes and like half a cup of milk. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. People are not going to go for that. Uh, I mean, that's the problem, right? Because that probably is objectively true that that would give you a perfectly balanced diet, but it's a little tricky to make that into a meal. Well, especially one that you'd eat, you know, more than once. Well, yeah. I think the potatoes and milk have everything other than like molybdenum, which you in theory could get from the dirt on the potatoes. Nice. So you just eat the potato raw and you're good to go. Oh. My stomach hurts just thinking about that. I feel like there's an Irish and potato. I'm Irish. I was just going, to, <laughs> just going to say, I feel like there's an Irish potato famine joke in here somewhere, but, you know, I know your people are still sensitive about that one. Yeah, speaking of the Irish potato famine, you know what also is uh, a completely uh, complete meal is uh, babies, Irish babies. Hmm. I read that. Uh, it's a very modest proposal, actually. Yeah, it's, it's the Swift diet, I believe, is what that's called. <laughs> That would actually be an awesome name for a diet. I wonder if you could sell a diet book like that. <laughs> well, ideally what you want to start another is, podcast. Uh, well, that would be an excellent uh, kind of Trojan horse sell is to, uh, you know, kind of write one of these 200 page diet books, you know, which of course any diet book only needs to be about three pages long, right? Uh, well, eat less crap, try exercising. Well, even that, but like even, you know, if you're on the Atkins diet, you could summarize the Atkins diet in like two paragraphs. You don't need to sell a 200 page book explaining the philosophy of the Atkins diet, you know? Yeah, that's, that's true. 
I often wonder how much the Atkins diet is just that like you get sick of eating like giant slabs of meat every day. And so you eat less of it. Yeah, that's part of it, I think. Didn't he die of a heart attack anyway? No, that's a I think that's a an urban myth. I think he had a he fell down fell down his uh fell down the stairs or something and hit his head. Oh. After tripping over a side of beef, of course. <laughs> All the bacon grease on the stairs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there was so much uh, cheese and uh, accumulated, you know, egg yolk and everything on his floor that he just couldn't couldn't walk upright anymore. Oh, you're right. He slipped on icy pavement. Oh, okay. Oh, that's that's disappointing. Was he at least in like a uh, a meat locker or something? No, he had a heart attack the year before. Maybe that's where it came from. He did have a heart attack, but. It was caused by a chronic infection. Man, this urban legend is terrible. Yeah. Well, shoot. time to fire up the meat again, I guess. <laughs> I feel like, ah, oh, shoot. We were on something, though, and now I've lost it again. Uh, I think we were ranting. Bread and napkins. Um, I'm going to have to cut, cut this out. But we were... Uh, Naturalistic fallacy. Well, we were on that. Oh, the MSG thing. We should maybe talk about the sodium debate at some later point, though, because I think that's interesting. But, yeah, so... MSG, people think it's so scary because it has this scary sounding name, right? Monosodium glutamate. But as you've said, the sodium, so this is just a two part molecule, right? Well, basically, where this, the monosodium just means an atom of sodium, which you may know from simple table salt, right? That's also half of table salt. And glutamate, or it's actually, I guess, glutamic acid, right? Well, yeah, it's the salt. It's the sodium salt of glutamic acid. Right. Uh, which you may recognize as being one of the most, well, you know, I, I guess all of them are important, but one of the most prevalent neurotransmitters in your brain, right? So I would say it's the most important. Well, that and GABA are the most important. I mean, you know, you kind of be screwed without any, like you wouldn't be a functioning organism without any of them. But yes, there's definitely the most glutamate. Well, we're going to come back to that in a second. With right. My exciting bit of the, the week. Okay, cool. Uh, we'll, we'll hold that off. But anyway, yes, as you mentioned, you know, all of the action of that, so all, all MSG seems to really do is, you know, the sodium bit is salty on your tongue, uh, and the glutamic acid, I think it does help to excite your taste buds more, right? Because they are sensory neurons. Well, there are acid-sensing ones. Well, that's true. Uh, but my impression was that they also had, maybe I could be wrong, that the glutamic acid all, all also did bind to, you know, just sort of activate. That's why it's a flavor enhancer, right? Well, actually, no, take I that back. It tastes umami, right? So it must bind selectively to umami receptors. Yep. So it behaves differently than glutamate does in the in the CNS, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, which is nice. Well, right. But in other words, you don't have... So, so I guess we should say, right, um, for the non-initiated, that glutamate is the major excitatory neurotransmitter in your whole nervous system, right? So when your neurons fire, when one neuron synapses onto another neuron and makes it fire, it's usually because of glutamate carrying that signal, right? Yep. So, but I guess I guess it is true that the your taste bud sensory neurons are not, well, I don't know if any of them are, you know, have traditional glutamate receptors in them, but I guess probably not, right? I'm pretty sure they don't. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. There are specialized, uh, there are specialized receptors definitely for, you know, sweet, uh, sour. Like, this is a thing that we should both know, actually. Well, I guess my question is really, yeah, obviously they're specialized for 
well, you, you know, you've got your basic five tastes, right? Sweet, sour, salty, uh, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and yeah, umami. But I guess my question is, what is the uh, kind of shape or, you know, if you, if you take the lock and key analogy. Oh, sorry. I take that back. The umami receptor basically is an L-glutamate thing. It's got, oh. it's got two subunits. So, so it's basically a modified version of a regular central nervous system neuron, like a glutamatergic, uh, neuron. I would guess that's where it came from, but, uh, yeah, that seems plausible that it's like sort of mutated and now it hangs out there. Yeah. Well, that's, and I was kind of wondering, uh, similarly with the other sense neurons in the tongue, like, you know, obviously most receptors are kind of, kind of dirty, right? Uh, in, in terms of, <laughs> they'll bind with, you know, more than one thing, right? They're not uh, completely monogamous. Oh yeah. I mean, that's how, you know, drugs work. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Not, not every drug is just an exact copy of something that's found in your nervous system, but it's close enough to fit for its lock to fit that key, right? Yep. Yeah, that's that's totally fair. So I was just wondering sort of how much uh, glutamate would fit the other sensory neurons. But, uh, you know, you would think, obviously, uh, the salty neurons, you know, would just be sodium ion channels, which we also have plenty of in our nervous system. Uh, it's funny you say that because it, this is from Wikipedia, but uh, it says, evidence for the salt receptor channels, however, is shaky at best and is often unconvincing in mammalian studies. For example, the proposed uh, e ENAC receptor for sodium can only be shown to contribute to sodium taste and drosophilia, which is uh, helpful. So, so we have no idea how the tongue works. What you're saying is we understand so much about how the CNS works and everything else, and we know that we like salty foods and that it's a basic taste, and we still don't know how. Yeah, except for the part where we understand the brain. Well, yes, but we understand the... That's just a lie we tell undergrads. And funding agencies. Well, that's one of those things that kind of comes around to back again, right? Like, whether or not you think you understand things. The more I know, the less I know. Yes. I should put that in a fortune cookie, which I should sell with it, which I should douse in MSG. I, there, I feel like there is some common, <laughs> yes, there is some common, or not common, but there is some saying about like, you know, the more you know, the more you know you don't know or something like that, right? Because it's not, well, obviously, it's not that you actually know any less. You just know how much there is out there and how... You have a better idea of what percentage of things you actually know. Oh, yeah. Nothing. Nothing at all. Well, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, so enough about MSG. It's funny, though, now that we got on this, because apparently MSG was first isolated from seaweed. Yeah, that's true. And I imagine that if you called it, like, seaweed extract, people would be lining up to buy it by the bottle. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, that Japanese, uh, I don't know exactly what type of seaweed it is, but I have eaten it. They actually can get that quite easily here in Malaysia, right? You get the kind of Kombu? compressed... Which one is it? Uh, kombu? It's not that one. Uh, at least that's not what it goes by here. But yeah, you kelp. Just, you, it's kelp. I guess it's kelp, yeah. It looks like a piece of paper that's been lit on fire. Uh, yeah, it's like a green, flat piece of kind of crispy, uh, thin paper. Like like a tissue paper consistency, but, but stiff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the broth from... Uh, I think it also goes into miso soup for some reason. Yeah, I think. well, I think the Japanese do... I mean... Uh, or and Asians in general, right? I mean, that's why it's common at Chinese restaurants, right? Like they've been putting that stuff into food for years. Yeah, uh, and they live forever, you know, in Asia. So clearly, it's not killing people. Did you know they have half of the people over a hundred years old? I just what in Japan or in Asia? Japan. Uh, okay, that's kind of nuts. 
That is kind of crazy. And I think it's like 50,000 people. That can't be right. 50,000 people over 100? Yeah. I guess it could be. We can look it up. Did you see that the oldest man in the world died? Meaning we have moved up one in the ranking. Awesome. I don't know that I really want that title, actually, but... I don't know, but he was 116, and he just looked... He looked... I mean, this would be insulting otherwise, but like a day over 80. (laughs) Well, I think that's one of those things that... um... You can only look so old, right, before... No, but he, I mean, he, did, he didn't look decrepit. He just looked like an old man. Yeah. The current oldest person looks kind of decrepit. Sorry if you're listening to this. <laughs> I find that unlikely, but... Uh... <laughs> yes. Oh. What? So that, that was totally untrue. It says the U.S. currently has the greatest known no number of centenarians of any nation. We 53,364. Japan has the second largest number of centenarians with an estimated 51,376. Uh, but there are way fewer people in Japan. So, yeah. Right. Well, uh, that's interesting. I mean, the fact that it's the U.S. is not that surprising because... Uh, yeah, Japan has about twice as many per capita. It has the most per capita. It, it's number one per capita, you said? Well, I guess it'd yeah. have to be. Yeah. France is uh, number two. Canada, woo number three. Nice. U.K., number four. Really? Sweden, number five, would be higher, but they've all been killed by Ikea furniture. Yes. <laughs> a lot of Allen wrench accidents. <laughs> Speaking of ironically dangerous places, Australia. But yeah, so the U.S. is actually not, like, terribly far down this list. Yeah. Weirdly, Ireland is. It's it's, it's very low number of, uh, what is it, yeah. centenarians? Yeah. Yep. They have 87. Only 87 in all of Ireland. Huh. Well, estimated. Well, <laughs> Yes. It's a very precise estimate. Well, I guess it makes sense. Although you think at that point you could just count, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. So, so back to neurotransmitters. Unless you're, Are you done ranting? Uh, I mean, I can, I can go back up the tree. That seems to be a common strategy. Go ahead. Okay, so I saw... I, I haven't raved to you about this yet because I've been yep. saving it for this. So I saw David Julius give a talk. Um, I've raved to everyone else about this on Facebook. Oh, I know that you saw... Yeah, I saw that you posted something, but go ahead. Oh, it was the coolest talk I've seen in a while. So he studies trip channels. Yeah, uh, it's TRP. So they're actually the name is stupid. Don't worry about the name. But uh, in most animals, they sense uh, two things: they sense temperature, and they also sense certain chemicals. So the trip channels are responsible for like the sensation of something being uh, too hot or too cold, sort of like uncomfortably right. so. Well, I was and, just explaining this to somebody recently that this is why, as we, as you and I both know very well, this is why uh, spicy things taste hot. You know, why right. we say hot and, and why menthol or mint, minty things taste cool is because they literally activate the same cells that make things on your tongue feel temperature hot or temperature cold. Exactly. So the, these chemicals sort of hijack the trip channels and cause them to open. So he studies that. And uh, so he has two sort of cool model systems. Uh, one is the pit viper. <laughs> and so the pit viper has a, uh, well, a pit uh, in its face. Please, please tell me he's feeding these poisonous snakes, you know, really spicy Mexican food, and then evaluate how that affects them. No, but it's, it's actually even cooler than that. So this pit has like, it looks like a retina. Uh, he said they haven't studied this a ton yet, but... Uh, so when you said they have a pit, you, you mean what exactly? I mean a pit, like a hole. Like where in their body? On their face. Uh, they have two okay. on their face, actually. It's like sort of near the eyes. We can put up a picture. Okay, so these are, but these are different from like nostrils or something, because they, they are just... No, no. So, so it, it's a pit. It's a little hole, and inside the hole, there's there's nothing except for this super thin layer of uh, 
of cells that express okay. these sort of heat sensitive trip channels. Right. And the pit is shaped, uh, it sort of looks like a retina. So it looks like a pinhole camera. So it sort of gets light only, the, or heat that's only sort of focused into one plane. Yeah. And uh, so they can use these, so they sense heat with these things and then it projects into their uh, visual system. So the, Weird. The, the, the snake has like a heat overlay of uh, stuff going on around it. And this is useful for the snake, right? Because it pounces on, you know, like... Hot things. Yeah, like mice and stuff that are warm-blooded. That's insane. It's So it has basically like Terminator vision. Yes. We think. Like, it, it hasn't been studied extensively because, you know, would you like to be the one training the, the, the like, venomous rattlesnake? <laughs> I'll pass, I think. The whole talk was me thinking, like, I really, really want to work on this. There's no way in hell I'm working on this. Yeah. But I wonder if I could put some electrodes in there. <laughs> I wonder if someone else could put some electrodes in there for me. Yeah. Well, in theory, if you just dress yourself in like aluminum foil, it should be all right, right? Like just reflect all the heat away from you and you'll be completely uh, invisible to them. Well, they have eyes too. Oh, well, that could be problematic. Then. <laughs> uh, uh, so his other model animal was even cooler. Yeah. And that is the vampire bat. Ah, yes. So the vampire bat, as you might guess from the name, uh, drinks blood. Yes, yes. Where's tuxedos? And of course. It does. Well, it's a bat. You know, it's already sort of formally dressed. It's a yeah, black. true. And uh, so it has these like weird rings on its nose. Okay. And, and these rings are loaded up with, with lots of trip channels too. You mean rings like inside the nostrils? No, uh, its nose basically is a series of concentric rings. Okay. I, I seem to remember bats having like kind of little pig snouts sort of, right? Well, this is a like a weird adaptation for the vampire bat. Oh, okay. So it's specifically vampire bats. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, so it sort of acts like the one in the snake. Oh, that does have a weird, weird nose. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're creepy as hell. He showed a video of them, like a night vision video of them. And they can also walk, unlike most birds. Well, they're, you mean like unlike most bats? Well, yeah, yeah. Like, well, even, even most birds, like, sort of, you know, don't walk very They kind of hop, yeah. Yeah, so this but thing I mean, uses the end of its wings, too, to walk. It's terrifying. yeah. They only live in South America, so I feel I feel okay. I see that. one. There's one on uh, Wiki, Wikimedia Commons that I'll link to. Of uh, it looks like a vampire bat in walking position, and that is, it kind of looks like a bat spider actually, and that in the way its legs uh, kind of align when it's walking, uh, which you know, <laughs> if you weren't terrified enough by vampire bats, just picture one in a spider pose, and that'll probably do it for you. Yeah, that, that's a really good description. So they like run up to the pig. And then they use this weird nose structure to yep. uh, to find the spots where the pig's blood vessels are closest to the surface. Yep. And then they pounce with their fangs. They inject something called Draculin, which keeps the blood from uh, coagulating. Awesome. And then they go to town on the pig. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, they're only like 40 grams, so they can't take that much blood away. Right. I mean, so they're really more of a pest to the pig than, uh, than an actual threat, I suppose, unless they carry a disease of some sort. Yeah, I would still say we should kill it with fire, except, you know, we can see where the fire is coming from. Well, yes. You need to kill it with a stake, I believe. But, uh, so the, there's one really... So then he talked a little bit about the molecular biology, and there's this really cool thing where you think, so if it has all these trip channels, right, which normally indicate pain, then right. the, the animal should be in, like, excruciating pain all the time. Oh, yeah, I guess that which, makes which sense. Which would suck if you were a bat or a snake. Well, in a way, but that's that's trip channels in the skin, right? Uh, which No, you have them in your viscera and stuff, too. 
But that is still for, is that still for sensing temperature-based pain? It wouldn't be, I guess, yeah. in, in the, well, but when your viscera, <laughs> I guess this is a loaded question. I was going to ask when your viscera get all hot, but uh, I don't know if I want to hear the answer to that. <laughs> well, you know, but I think if they ever do, it's something you want to get away from. Yeah, yeah, it's just that most of the time the heat comes from the outside, so you'd think you'd only want it or need it in your skin, right? But I don't know. Yeah, so, but so, yes, I, I guess that would make sense. But so they have uh, these two variants of the trip channels. So there's yeah. sort of like a low temperature threshold one and a high temperature threshold one. Right. And so they're the, like basically the same protein, except, uh, you know, how there's like different splice variants where you yeah. basically chop off different bits of the protein. Right. Yeah, so so the the bat and snake have their uh, sort of low temperature variant only expressed in the part of their in their sort of sensory apparatus, right? And then they have the high temperature one expressed everywhere else. Okay, interesting. So then you got some like other bats and other snakes that don't have uh, heat sensitivity, and those guys only have the high temperature one, and you know sort of expressed everywhere. Yeah, it was just really cool. Like the whole story hung together fantastically well, That's and there cool. were these. Freaky ass animals. <laughs> Always a plus. And there were good snacks afterwards. <laughs> uh, were you forced to find them like blindfolded, you know, by by how warm they were? I thought they should have had like blood sausage and garlic, but no, mm, no, no one asked me. Uh, all right. But yeah, David Julius, don't don't mess with his lab, or they will sick things on you. Or they will just yeah send the vampire bats and the pit vipers after you. I would imagine he has like no animal rights problems. It's like oh, we should save the oh god. Yeah, exactly. Now, you guys, be nice to the pit... Ah, uh, who am I kidding? So anyways, that was really cool. He has a bunch of papers. Like, basically, his lab finds creepy animals and then studies trip channels in them. Okay, cool. Uh, I feel like... That, but it does sound like they're just kind of, like, fishing around to be like, what should we study next? I know, the angry rhinoceros. Well, I mean, they're, you know, sort of, like... They're very relevant for pain and stuff. So yeah, a fair bit of his talk was sort of drug discovery things, like... Well, you know, if we could turn the, the low sensitive chip channel into the high sensitive or the high sensitive thing into the low sensitive thing. Oh, there's all these other things that sort of facilitate them, which sort of moves your temperature sensitivity down in response to injury. Yeah. But uh, that was not as creepy as the vampire bats. Right. Well, and I guess it also stands to reason that like kind of your freakier, you know, more bizarro animals are going to be the ones that have the adaptations that are interesting, right? Because, you know... Mammals are kind of boring in that way, in that we, well, we do, I mean, there are plenty of variations. The bats are mammals. Well, that's true. Okay, sorry. I was thinking more like dog, cat, you know, squirrel type uh, mammals. But yeah, I mean, everyday animals, I guess we don't have a ton of adaptations that are that different from each other, in, at least in that regard. Although, maybe that's... No, I mean, world. we've colored... Well, so I think... Maybe we're just know. used to people using, you know, rats and mice and dogs and cats so much that, you know, they don't seem that interesting anymore. Well, I guess there are two, sort of two schools of thought, right? One is that, you know, we have the mouse and we know every friggin' thing we could know about the mouse. We have sequenced yeah. it. We have knocked out, like, all the genes that we can knock out. Well, not all of them, but... Yeah. And so, you know, it's nice. You can do whatever you want to a mouse. It's all been super studied. And there's sort of the ethology thing where, you know, we're going to find an animal that's really good at something, and then we'll, stu we'll study that in the animal. So we're yeah. going to study sound location in owls and bats and dolphins, and we'll study, you know... Uh, temperature sensation in pit vipers and yeah i don't know i think that's sort of gone out of style i think like you know songbirds had a nice sort of bubble when we were in grad school and now it's gone which makes me yeah sad. well they may come back 
If I ever get tenure, my lab's gonna be full of animals. <laughs> It'll just be the Doctor Doolittle of uh, of neuroscience. Except for the snakes, I'll have a postdoc feed the snakes. <laughs> well, you know, as we saw in uh, uh, McSweeney's, you know, you have to be pretty good at the snake fight portion of your thesis defense <laughs> to even finish. So, should link up that article. It's a pretty good one. Um, okay, well, uh, we should get to our actual content because um, that was content. That was on the no, list. Well, that was well. Oh yeah, that's true. That one was on the list. But um, we are fifty minutes in, and we should probably not have another two-hour episode. No, if, if for no other reason than I need to do laundry. <laughs> well, yeah, and I need to go to bed at some point, um, and also do some things before bed. But so uh, just to just to finish up on the like taste rant, um, you know, you and I actually did uh, another one of these that has been semi-officially disproven is the um, you know the hipster obsession with sugarcane coke as opposed to um, corn syrup coke right uh, I did not well we have done this several times well right and you've heard you've probably heard people say like ah you know that's the good stuff is the uh, is the real sugarcane and now they they're even marketing it right like Pepsi throwback and all those throwback ones right made with real cane sugar and not not that nasty old corn syrup right yeah, I saw a Mountain Dew throwback the other day too. Oh yeah, well that gas like, <laughs> station in Vermont. Yeah, I don't know what it's throwing back to. Like, well, Mountain Dew throwback. Due to, I mean, if you look on the side of the can, it uh, you know it shows this like kind of bumpkin fellow, I believe, in the original can. So it has has vaguely antebellum racist connotations to it. Actually, I think. Wait, is that true everywhere? Because it was I was in like deepest darkest nowhere, and it had like the the redneck guy on the Mountain Dew bottle. Yeah, and I couldn't decide if that was like targeted selling to people in sort of north north central Vermont where there's no gas stations for miles. I I think no, I think that's well I think Mountain Dew did originally come from the south and had this kind of you know, it has this kind of Mountain Dew like uh this uh southern association anyway. Um uh, <laughs> apparently. Really? I didn't know that. Well, apparently it was first marketed in Marion, Virginia, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Johnson City, Tennessee, with the slogan, Yahoo Mountain Dew, it'll tickle your innards. That is the least appealing slogan I can imagine. <laughs> and this is kind of all fitting together quite nicely with the, uh, the temperature-sensitive uh, viscera and so forth. Uh, you could actually sense it tickling your innards, apparently. But yeah, I think it had the word Mountain Dew. Yeah, it was originally Southern and or Scots-Irish slang for moonshine according to Wikipedia. So, yeah, and it originally had the cartoon, cartoon character Willie the Hillbilly as its, uh, as its like, little mascot guy. Is he one of your kin? Uh, he probably is. I mean, I'm from not too far away from there. <laughs> um, I, don't have any, I don't have any Willie relatives, but I certainly have plenty of Hillbilly relatives. <laughs> wow. I should just add that it's spelled, it'll tickle your... Y-O-R-E. Yep. Innards. Yep. And he's shooting uh, a gun at at someone. Is that a chicken shooting a gun? Uh, no, I think it's a human shooting a gun. He's probably shooting... What's, what's on the human's head? Uh, I don't know. This is... It looks kind of like Foghorn Leghorn. Like, like Foghorn Leghorn and... It looks like he's shooting another guy going to the outhouse, actually, in this particular <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm looking at, too. Yeah. It's like... Uh, don't you dare go to the bathroom. Let tickle your innards, boy. I, I will literally tickle your innards. Uh, with lead. With my, with my gun, yes. Uh, 
weird. But um, anyway, you know, people always say like, there's this crusade against corn sugar, and I, I do agree, it's bad to like just put sugar willy nilly the hillbilly all over, you know, all products. But, you know, people keep saying like, oh, the, like Mexican Coke is cane sugar Coke, and I think Malaysian Coke is too. I think it's everywhere outside the U.S. actually. I think most places. Because um, the U.S. subsidizes the heck out of corn. Yeah, and and conversely, places like Mexico and uh, Malaysia and so forth, you know, grow plenty of their own sugar in the form of sugar cane. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we had, so, it's also, the Coke was, even with, before the throwback thing was popular, you know, around, uh, which is it? Uh, Passover. Passover time, yeah. Uh, which, you know, in Connecticut, there's a fair number of... Uh, people that might be celebrating Passover. So uh, they would have the special Passover Coke because I guess, what, you're not supposed to have any grain. You can't have any, like, fermented grain? Yeah. Which have... includes, I guess, corn syrup uh, by the whoever interprets these things. Well, I, I think the shtick is that, you know, when they were fleeing Egypt, they didn't have time to make bread. They didn't have time for the bread right. to rise. So you don't want any grains that have been wet, basically, because it could be rising. Oh, is that the, because I wasn't I sure, I knew, I knew you couldn't use actual yeast to raise your bread, but I wasn't sure what the Well, I think it depends on your was. degree of sort of orthodoxy or hardcoreness. Right. I think if you're like super, super orthodox, you don't want any grain that's been wet for more than like a few minutes because it could be rising. Okay. I think that's the logic behind using sugar instead of uh, corn. I guess that makes sense, right? Because the sugar in sugarcane is basically scraped or whatever directly from sugarcane. Well, it's not a grain. Well, it's no grain. Yeah, it's yeah. I feel like there's a there's a grain and cane falls mainly on the something. Yeah. I don't know enough. I don't know any Yiddish words that rhyme with. Well, yeah, I was trying to think of a great satyr joke, but uh, yeah. oh well. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so you can get the Passover special Coke, right? That's made with that's uh, made with sugar cane, and so we did this, right? Uh, you and me and our pals, uh, Chris and Nicole. And was that all of us? Maybe a couple of other people? No, I people. think there were a fair number of people. Yeah, and we all did uh, a semi-scientific double-blind taste test. And the grand conclusion was that nobody could tell the difference, right? Yep. Um, and if anything, I think people slightly preferred the uh, the corn syrup Coke, if I recall correctly. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, it was it wasn't, you know, we did run some rough statistics. I think each of us tasted like three times or something like that, you know, in, in random order. Uh, three of each thing in random order. And uh, yeah, if I recall correctly, there was a slight preference and, and no one was particularly consistent. There was a slight preference for the corn syrup and uh, nobody was consistently above chance though, individually. Um, and Serious Eats also did, you know the blog Serious Eats, I assume, right? I love Serious Eats. It is the best blog almost ever. Yeah. So Series Eats did basically the same thing we did, um, and they also concluded that nobody could tell the difference between uh, cane sugar and uh, corn syrup Coke. So another another hipster <laughs> myth dispelled. Uh, we got scooped by... Oh. Yeah, we did get scooped. They didn't do it until 2011. They didn't do it until 2011? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we didn't, didn't exactly rush to publish that one, but... Uh, you know, story of my life. Yeah. Well, I... <laughs> Somehow I think that would not have been uh, widely cited. Although, speaking of citations... I don't know. I mean, higher impact factor than... Well, but what I was going to say is, I, I realize, sadly, this podcast now officially, if our download statistics are right, has far more listeners than probably any paper I've ever written. 
that's depressing. Let's never speak of that again. Or uh, you know what I mean? Than than any paper I have ever been involved with has had readers. Oh no, right? I I completely know what you mean. Yeah, I mean it's hard to say, right? Because you don't get download statistics for your papers, but certainly we have far more listeners than uh, any paper of mine has ever been cited. Although the the other thing we know about Coke from our actually from our grad school experiences is that they tweak the formula for different places. Yeah. Right. Remember we went to the Coke Museum and they had that vile Italian vermouth soda. Yeah, it was called. Um, uh, I was just thinking about that the other day, and now the name is escaping. I think it was a uh, vomito di Satan. <laughs> it did start with a V. It was. Uh, uh, shoot. Coke vermouth soda. I want. I want to say Verona, but that's not right. Um, no, no, Beverly. <laughs> Beverly was one of the Beverly ones. Yeah. Oh, that was vile. Yeah, that was disgusting. You know what's funny is. Um, I have talked to, you know, many people or heard, you know, even on other podcasts and things, people talk about going to the Coke Museum and to a person, everyone always goes, yeah, like, oh yeah, there's the mango thing. That was pretty good. You know, the, the Coke in other parts of the world tasted about the same, but a little bit different. But then that Beverly stuff is disgusting. All right. So this is an unsourced claim on the internet. So, you know, take this for whatever it's worth. But I quote, one employee of the world of Coca-Cola in Atlanta claimed that on average 2000 people go through the tasting area each day. On average, five people enjoy the taste of Beverly. <laughs> that sounds about right to me. <laughs> then there's a photo of it, so you know what to avoid. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not like. Uh, have you ever tasted this uh, thing that's very popular in Malaysia? This fruit durian. I know you've heard of it. I, I have, and actually, I just saw it for sale here. It's vile. Yeah. Oh, actually, you probably ate some of the candy that I brought back with me during that last visit. I did. I ate one of those, and uh, Ken Kwan – no, Ken doesn't like it. Uh, Mandy, Mandy really likes it, and his daughter really likes it. So they allowed me – generously allowed me to taste a very small amount of it, diluted in a milkshake, right? So you'd think how mm. vile could a milkshake be? Yeah. Vile. Very very vile. How would you describe the, the experience? Well, I mean, so uh, I've had durian, I think, all of twice – well, three times if you count the candy – um, I mean, people describe it in various ways. Uh, some people say it, you know, it's like rotting flesh. Some people say, you know... Diaper full t- of Indian food. Yes, basically. Uh, a turd covered in bird hair and so forth. But, uh, you know, I don't think it's... I, I can't compare the taste to any one particular thing. Uh, I just think it tastes distinctly unlike anything that should be food. Yeah, they have them for sale fresh here in the Chinese stores. Okay. Well, you can certainly buy them here, like just on the side of the road, out of the trunk of some guy's car, etc. Um, and also in supermarkets. Is it durians that are not allowed to be taken on the subway or the train? Well, um, I don't know about that per se, but definitely you see signs in public places oftentimes saying don't eat durian here. Like uh, if you go to a lot of hotels, eating durian is banned in the hotel for obvious reasons. Because uh, the smell does really – well, maybe not so obvious. The smell really carries uh, quite, quite far <laughs> And it's so, you know, people say that, oh, well, the smell is really the bad part. The taste is all right. The taste is sort of a generic. If you hold your nose, the taste is sort of this generic. It's kind of really creamy in texture uh, for a fruit. It's more like a thick kind of custard texture. The texture was not objectionable. The the rest of it was objectionable. Yeah, the texture is kind of, well, you know what? It's kind of like um, softened cream cheese. Like if you get kind of the pre-whipped cream cheese uh, or somewhere between... Maybe like cheesecake texture, uh, something oh, like that. Oh, you're not kidding. Here's a sign. Oh, this is from Singapore. And it says no smoking. And there's a picture of a cigarette, you know, crossed out. No eating or drinking. Food crossed out. No durians. 
Yeah. Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's gross, but... Um... <laughs> Anthony Burgess writes that eating durian is like eating a sweet raspberry blancmange in, in the lavatory. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of colorful descriptions, but I think none of them really do it justice. It is really... I mean, it's not so vile that I felt ill eating it, but I might feel ill if I ate more than like a small taste of it. What if it were dyed blue? If it were dyed blue, it'd probably taste like sweet cotton candy. Do you know they have maple cotton candy here? No, but, <laughs> no, but I'm not surprised, I guess. No, neither am I. I haven't tried it yet, but I, I want to. Well, the, the basic cotton candy flavor is just sugar, sugar, right? Yeah. Although I don't typically, I don't know about you, but I don't typically like um, like maple flavoring anything but actual maple syrup. Like maple ice cream and stuff I find a bit gross. You might not like Canada very much, then. <laughs> they just have maple everything? I've been keeping a list for Zoe, because uh, Zoe Klein is apparently obsessed with maple things. Okay. Uh, I can't find it now. But yeah, so maple coffee, maple tea, maple ice cream, uh, maple jam, maple mayonnaise, maple taffy. I mean, maple taffy, that makes sense. Why maple mayonnaise? What do you put mayonnaise on that also needs to taste like maple? I, well, it was on a, I didn't get it. it was, this was at the hospital cafeteria, actually. I didn't get it because I thought it was gross. But people have pointed out to me that, you know, maple glazed ham is pretty good. That's good. Well, you know what is really good is like when you have pancakes and you dip your sausage or your bacon or whatever in a little bit of maple syrup. I agree. That's good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely that. Uh, actually, one of the best things I've eaten since I've been here was a pickerel poached in maple sap, which is sort of like the, you know, the dilute liquid that the maple syrup comes from. Yeah. It was at a ridiculously fancy restaurant, though, so I don't know if it was just going to be good, like, regardless, or the sap added a kick to it. Uh, oh, speaking of... Uh... Oh, this is awesome. Sorry, can <laughs> I go back to the durian? Sure, go ahead. So the durian's Latin name is uh, Vivivera Zibeth, yep. uh, Zibetha. And it says, there's a disagreement whether this name, bestowed by Linnaeus, refers to, uh, refers to the civet cat, which is a, like a wild cat that lives in, lives in Asia. I was just trying to think of the name of that the other day. You know the cool thing about the civet cat, right? They eat the beans, and then people make fancy coffee out of the beans the cat has shit out. Yep, yep. You know, the cat poop coffee. So, so this goes nicely with that, actually. Oh, wait. Sorry, you're siloning it a little bit. Say again. Oh, so this goes nicely with that, actually. Okay, so, so the Latin name for durians refers to the civet cat. Right. However, there's apparently a, a fairly vehement disagreement over whether this is because the cats are fond of durians, and you can use the fruit to, as bait to catch them. Okay. Or because the durians smell like the mangy wild cats. <laughs> Interesting. Um, well, I have seen both. <clears throat> have you seen a civet? Yeah, I have. They have them at the zoo here. Um, they actually seem pretty smart and cool. Um, I mean, they drink coffee, sort of. Well, they eat coffee beans, but I, I'm not sure to what extent that's voluntary versus... Yeah. No, they eat them in the wild. Oh, do they eat them in the wild and poop them out? Yeah. Well, I guess the pooping... Sort of comes, sort of directly correlates to the eating. Oh, I had never noticed. They do have a sort of Malaysian-looking name. Uh, the civet? What do you mean? Kopi Luak? Oh, 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 I see what you mean. Uh, the name of the coffee. Oh, is it coffee? Oh, Kopi is coffee? Kopi is coffee. Um, I'm not sure what Luak means. I can look that up quickly. Uh, I would guess it means civet. Maybe. Don't, don't take that to... It's super obvious. Well, he has a lot of weird names for things. I didn't realize they fed them in captivity. That's kind of sad. Well, I figured. Yeah, Luwak is the Indonesian name for the Asian palm civet. Okay. 
All right, cool. I couldn't find it in my dictionary, but that might be an Indonesian term, not a Malaysian term. Yeah, I've never had it actually. I, you know, it's not particularly co uh, common here. What is common? You know, when you get coffee here, it's always this disgusting uh, instant coffee. That's a mixture. They call it three in one. It's a mixture of coffee, dry. Uh, what should we call it? Powdered milk or whatever creamer and sugar already blended together, and you just add water. But it's it's super gross because everyone likes their coffee incredibly milky and incredibly sweet here. So, is it is it hot or cold? Well, I mean, when you go to the coffee aisle in the supermarket, it's in, like it's powdered instant coffee, you know, that you just buy in a bag and make however you like. But um, you can get it. You can get coffee hot or cold here. But what's the default? Um, I guess hot. Oh, okay. Because it's hot in Malaysia. Well, yeah. I mean, it's certainly not unusual, like, uh, to be able to order most drinks either hot or cold. Even actually a lot of things that you wouldn't think you would want hot. Um, but often they, it seems like when I go to a place and they've got a menu, they've just got a, a, you know, an overall beverages can be hot or cold, even things like, I, I don't know if it's really true that you would ever order like fruit juice hot, but it's in the same oh. list as, well, it's in the same list as like coffee and tea and everything else though. So, but you know, if you go to the South and you ask for tea, it's going to be sweet tea. Yeah. Whereas up here, you know, it is unknown to Canadian kind. That's true. But what's, I think what's gross to me is that it's like, you know, I, I certainly agree. Like, if you also go to Dunkin' Donuts, you get pretty sweet, milky tea if you ask for, like, the regular style. Uh, sorry, coffee. If you ask for regular coffee. But um, I, I don't know. It's different here, especially, I think, because it's all instantified. Like, it's hard to find coffee grounds here. Um, oh, weird. And you get coffee beans, but they're... Um, but you have to grind them yourself? Well, A, you have to grind them yourself, and B... Uh, it's, you know, expensive, right? Because usually it's the nice fancy coffee that you buy the beans directly. Um, so yeah, I actually like paid through the nose for just a big jug of uh, Maxwell House or something recently, uh, cause I couldn't mm. find anything cheaper. And that was still like five times as expensive as Maxwell House is in the States. Cause it's imported, you see. Ah, yes. It is funny when things get labeled imported, even though they're not very good. Yeah. Like, like, there's a wide variety of imported beers here that, you know, people would laugh if you tried to sell them at imported prices at home. Right, yeah. I mean, well, here, well, actually, you can't get Budweiser here, but, uh, you know, in Belgium, Budweiser would be imported. Although, actually, it's funny to me that American beers are not more popular. Uh, I don't think you can get any American beers here, but uh, all of the beers here are kind of like light lagers. So, you would think that, uh, or lagers or pilsners, I guess, but... You would think that things like Budweiser and such would be very popular when... Uh, That's weird. Do you think maybe they're owned by Budweiser? Well, uh, no, I think it's more that there's weird, like, import yeah. laws and stuff, and a, a few companies kind of have a monopoly, and it's just whatever they import. But, like, you can you actually can get Guinness here. That's one brand you can get that is not a light lager. But other than that, you can get, um, I think, a Singaporean beer named Tiger. You get Carlsberg. Well, Carlsberg is, like, the biggest beer company ever. Yeah, and you can get uh, Heineken, but, you know, it's all like Carlsberg, Heineken, etc. kind of beers, uh, which is not that exciting. But anyway, that's kind of off topic, I guess. So I've been still reading about durian while we were yep. reconnecting. Apparently there's a dish made with fermented durian. Uh, what's that one? Tempo yak. Okay, I haven't had that. It is made with, usually made from lower quality durian, durian that is unsuitable for direct consumption. Ugh. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh yeah 
Yeah, it's quite gross. Um, Sometimes it's burned and the ash is added to cakes. This is just not meant to be eaten. No. Oh, and the seeds are super toxic. Oh, awesome. Well, also, if you look at the outside of durian fruit, it's it is not in, a friendly looking. It's like the porcupine of fruits, right? Like, except the inside of a porcupine probably tastes much better. <laughs> Even raw. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would probably rather eat like raw porcupine uh, entrails, you know, than more durian. I am almost certain that could be arranged when you're back home. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying I'd like to, but uh, I'm just saying, given the choice. But yeah, this is a fruit that is saying. It's basically waving giant flags saying, do not eat me, whatever you do. And human beings are like, nope, I'm going to try that. I'm going to make it happen. I, I highly recommend reading the Wikipedia article if you would like some flavorful descriptions. Uh, yeah, I, we can link to that later. I've, I've certainly heard many varieties. But, um, I mean, this, is, this kind of links back, actually. Once again, we've kind of successfully kind of taken the roundabout way back to our first topic, which is, you know, I always – this is why I always sort of claim – that I'm, I'm unconvinced by like fancy food a lot of the time or, or the, the value of fancy food because the real answer is human beings can convince themselves to eat just about anything with enough effort, right? And all these studies show over and over again that like a lot of psychological factors are largely what influence your perception of taste, right? So, I, you know, both like the fact that, you know, people... Because anyone who visits one of these durian-eating countries and tastes durian, nobody ever likes it, right? But the, the natives love it. Yeah. Okay, so that's you, fair enough. Well, but, you know, so basically, clearly it's not. So, you know, this, this goes for kind of any delicacy, right? Whether it's durian or uh, lutefisk or something like that, right? Like, they all taste disgusting to people that aren't familiar with them. So the question is, do they really taste good? Like, if you have to acquire a taste for something... In what way can that be called good? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, when we were little, beer was disgusting and gross, and so was coffee and tea. Well, so that's my, uh, that's actually my, uh, that's a good follow-up. And, uh, you know, I guess the question is, can you really say, you know, now you know, having drunk beer, I, I've seen you drink a beer or two in your time, you know what a good beer, quote-unquote good beer, is supposed to taste like, right? Yeah. Versus, versus a bad beer, but... Is that really because there's anything better about it or because you have been trained to an arbitrary standard of what is good or bad and that now you just have been trained to associate, uh, you know, the one that you can tag as good with, with goodness? You know what I mean? Uh, maybe a little bit of both, I guess. I mean, people do have different tastes in, you know, things like beer. That is true. And, and I, would, I would certainly believe in that. But I just wonder, like, this is, this is why I'm very doubtful. I'm like, well, if people can learn that they learn to like durian. I don't think anyone else on the planet, aside from durian-eating countries, would say, like, oh, yes, that's really good food. That's a great delicacy. I would pay a lot of money for that. And they are actually quite expensive. The ones on the street were, like, five or ten bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's relatively cheap here. Well, it's because it grows there. Well, also, you don't really need a whole one, usually, right? I mean, they're pretty big. Yeah, that's true. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just wonder if it's... If it's the fact that acquiring a taste for something or like training yourself to recognize the taste is difficult. If that's what people are really <clears throat> prizing or valuing um, when you talk about, you know, someone being a connoisseur of wine or coffee or anything like that, you know, like it's very easy to appreciate a cheeseburger because pretty much anyone who eats meat 
thinks the cheeseburger is pretty delicious the first time, right? Yeah. And is it just because it's not difficult that that is, you know, considered low food? No, I don't know. I mean, you can drop a ton of money on a cheeseburger if you're going to the right place. Well, true, but, but, you know, by the same principle, like, you know, is that cheeseburger really better? Or have you just been trained to recognize, like, the variations in cheeseburgers that people associate with higher cost, you know? Mm, maybe a bit of both. Yeah. But sorry to keep coming back to the durian, but this is just... So I, I, <laughs> I've scrolled down to the cultural influences part to see if they had anything relevant. Yep. And uh, the Javanese believe that, that durian have aphrodisiac qualities and impose a set of rules on what may or may not be consumed with it. A saying in Indonesian, blah, 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 means the durian falls and the sarong comes up, which refers to this belief. Um, all I can say <laughs> is I have never directly observed this. Although, maybe, maybe you should eat more durian. I was going to say, maybe I should give it a try. Um... <laughs> The only uh, I was going to make a very bad pun. Come on, if this is not the place, what is? Uh, I, I, it's not even fully formed. Just something about how you know the taste of durian is so wrong. Uh, <laughs> it's something, something. But <laughs> I, yeah. So right, but so wrong. M much like the sarong, so I couldn't really get that joke off. The article then abruptly segues into recommendations that you wear a hard hat while collecting the fruit because of its <laughs> pointy spines and heavy weight. Exactly. I mean, it is the fruit that is actually trying to kill you. Uh, well, so, and, and speaking, so before I, before we go off the durian entirely, did you talk to Mike Henderson when he visited me here uh, and his experiences? Uh, a little bit. Uh, so, so the funny thing that happened to him was um, he had been telling me, and it, so we, he, he came to Singapore and I met up with him in Singapore and then he came back to Malaysia with me and spent a couple of days with me in Malaysia. And uh, while he was in Singapore, he was telling me like, he wandered into a pretty heavily Chinese part of town. And all of Singapore is pretty heavily Chinese, but a more Chinese Chinese where they didn't speak a lot of English. And, you know, saw people selling food on the street and was just kind of like, all right, I'll just eat some of this stuff. I'm sure it's pretty good. And, uh, and so he goes up to this old man on the street selling ice cream in bread, which is a way that it is sold here. And I've had it. And it's not very good, actually. I prefer Wait, it. ice cream on bread? Yeah, it's just uh, I had this in Indonesia just a few days ago. Like, did someone misunderstand the ice cream sandwich? I don't think so, although it is, that's basically what it is. Like, I had, uh, I had uh, chocolate ice cream in basically a hamburger bun, and you just kind of, like, like just wedge the ice cream in the hamburger bun and, and eat it like that. That just seems like it would not be very well engineered. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was more difficult to eat than an ice cream cone, but it also was, I found, like, the, you know, the taste didn't really accentuate each other the way that I, a nice cone does, but... Uh, yeah, it's something people do. But anyway, so he, you know, he's like, all right, well, I like ice cream. And the old man didn't really speak any English to tell him what kind of ice cream it was. But, you know, how bad could ice cream be? So he buys this for a couple of bucks and eats it, and it's disgusting. And so he was telling me about this, and I, you know, I was like, all right, well, I don't know what that was, but bye. So flash forward to a few days later, he's with me in Malaysia, and we've made a couple of plans that have not gone off right. Like we were going to go up in one of the buildings, and tickets were all sold out and so forth. And I was like, all right. Well, I feel bad for you for not having gotten these couple of uh, experiences, so I'm going to treat you to a real Malaysian experience and buy you some durian. So I went to the local durian stand, which I think is hilariously, which is hilariously to me, entitled Durian Durian. I have no idea if they, rec if they know of the band Duran Duran and why this is so funny to me. 
Um, Wait, is that just plural though? Doesn't that just mean durians? Well, yeah. So in, in Malay, you, I mean, there is no grammatical plural, but if you need to, so you just use the same word for singular and plural a lot of the time. But if you need to emphasize the plurality of something or just accentuate the meaning, you just say it twice. So it could mean like... Durian city. Like really durian-y, yeah. Spatula city, spatula city. Anyway, so we went to Durian Durian, um, even though we were not hungry like the wolf. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> That really needs to be on the menu. <laughs> well, but I, yeah, I, I think they don't have any idea of this band and why that's funny to me. So anyway, we went to Durian Durian, and for, you know, the equivalent of about one U.S. dollar, I bought him like a little durian pastry thing, which is just kind of a little like, uh, it's kind of like a little pancake or something, but has, you know, just durian inside. The pancake part is quite tasty, but uh, it's kind of a little like a little crepe, basically. But he tasted me. He's like, oh, God, I've had this before. This is what the stuff was in Singapore the other day. Ah. So basically, I forced him to eat durian, like disgust himself the second time in like three days uh, when he was already having kind of a crappy day. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at Duran Duran songs. Yep. You could do a great durian themed restaurant here. Oh, yeah. All that she wants. Okay. <laughs> Burning the ground. <laughs> <laughs> do you believe in shame nice out of my mind uh, someone else good. not me yeah that's a good slogan for, uh, for save a so. prayer nice not hungry like the wolf yep and my personal favorite here is there something I should know <laughs> yes the durian tastes like garbage I think we should, you always want to open a business I think this could be it Anyway. Oh, you do have a sense of smell. Who doesn't have a sense of smell that we know? Mm, I don't have a really great sense of smell, but I do have one. I don't, do we know someone that lacks a sense of smell? Yeah. I don't know yeah. who it is. Yeah, we'll have to employ them in our durian. Durian Duran. Yeah. Um, what, was it, what was... Oh, I just said this to Alyssa the other day. So our... <laughs> I think we might have to cut this one out. But you know how um, uh, Alyssa wanted to open up a fudge store called Round the Corner Fudge. Yep. I had like, you know, a three years later, oh, I wanted the slogan for, uh, like the billboard slogan for Round the Corner Fudge to be, go fudge yourself. <laughs> yeah, that would be a pretty good slogan for a fudge shop. That would be a great slogan for a fudge shop. Yeah. Uh, okay, so... So we should uh, talk about science at some point instead of just well, weird yeah, fruits. Well, yeah, so to wrap up the food segment, um, so we'll link to some of the wine tasting stuff. I would just like to mention while we're on the subjects of Malaysia and everything else, that Malaysian Coke is, I am told, and I haven't checked this out scientifically, but I am told that it is the sweetest Coke in the world with the highest sugar content, which I'm pretty proud of. Uh, it beats out, I think Mexican Coke is really sweet too, but I think Malaysian Coke is even sweeter. That's actually, I wonder if like sweet receptors vary from, you know, there's lots of weird sort of... Well, so I was just talking about this the other day. It seems to be the case that equatorial countries have a greater sweet tooth, especially for beverages. Like, drinks especially here are incredibly sweet almost almost all the time. Like, I think their basic formula for any food or any beverage is like, you know, boil some water, add sugar until it, the water will hold no more sugar in it, uh, and it's super saturated, and then drop in some food coloring and serve. Huh. But it seems to be the case in, like, the Middle East and, you know, Latin America and so forth also. They like it's definitely true in the U.S. too, right? Like, you know. Yeah, people like sweeter stuff in the South than in the North. Yeah, definitely. Um, hmm. 
So, but we don't know why that is, right? So one theory is that like tropical fruits, like or fruits in general, grow more in those areas. So that maybe you get a taste for, you know, sweet fruity things. Or possibly the other question was like, and, and we don't we didn't feel this to be true, but is there something like you tend to be dehydrated in these places more? So is there something about the sweet that is more thirst quenching or people think it is anyway? Huh, that's interesting. Because you know like you use uh, mannitol. So if you're that? if you're like sort of overhydrated. Right. Uh you get this you normally get a IV of it, I guess. It's called mannitol. Okay. And it's a sugar alcohol, but it actually dehydrates you. Well, that's what we were saying is, uh, I didn't know that, but um, at least my impression, when I drink something too sugary, it actually makes my mouth feel very dry. Uh, it doesn't feel as thirst quenching as something that's like a little bit sweet. No, no, that, that's exactly it. Because uh, the sugar messes with the osmolarity and pulls water out of the cells. Okay. So kind of just like having something salty, similar, similar kind of thing. You want to dilute the sugar more. Basically, yep. right? Yeah. So we thought that was not the case. Although uh, there is the, there is also the idea, right, that like uh, people often describe the taste of cold water as being sweet, right? Yeah. You know, like sometimes someone's really thirsty, they'll say something like oh, sweet water, you know, something like that. When, so there is a kind of associated association with cold beverages and sweetness. So maybe it's, it enhances the cold feeling. You know, psychologically speaking, I we weren't sure. There's also the there's also the horrible confound that you know, you're really not going to get sugarcane to grow in like Quebec. Uh, true, that's true. I'm just looking to see if there is any research on why hot countries prefer sweeter beverages, but that might be something to follow up on later. I mean, I've heard that in terms of spicy food too, right? What about it? It's sort of supposed to desensitize you to heat. Oh, interesting. That I've never of it quite that way but i guess that's because think of where all like the your sort of spicy cuisines are from yeah you know you have mexico you have sort of southern china you have uh india right but then again you have the same issue right is that hot peppers i believe tend to be indigenous to those areas right uh, you can grow them in connecticut true well i mean you can grow a lot of things a lot of places they didn't originally come from but you know i think they did they are more indigenous to those places, right? Uh, funnily enough, actually, Malaysians, you would think would be very like into spicy food. Some of them are, but it's not quite the tolerance that I expected from uh, Southeast Asia. You think it's just the, the Chinese influence? Well, some of the Chinese food is spicy. Uh, but, you know, there's plenty of Indian food and so forth. And that can be also very spicy. But certainly nothing I've had here has compared to... Uh, what I've, you know, at least heard that real Indian food or real Pakistani food or even like, you know, some Mexican food is like, although you can make it like arbitrarily spicy because they'll often have like spicy peppers or whatever just around for you to add to stuff. So maybe that's how they do it. Were you with uh, me and Julie when we went to uh, Thai Terrace and asked them to make it native spicy? Yes. Yes. I was with you at least one time there. That was, that was very spicy. That was the second spiciest meal I think I've ever had. Oh, that's true. I remember you taunting me. <laughs> How so? Because I, mine was like a pile of hot peppers and a small bit of the other foods. And I, or, I tried to order a Thai iced tea and the guy took his sweet time bringing it over. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I think I ordered mine to be not quite as spicy as yours. If I, I think I think I get carried away with the Nick and Julie. Yeah. Well, I had a similar, I think part of my version might be from the spiciest meal I ever had, which was 
when my Pakistani uh, sweetmate Mansoor uh, in college, we went to the local Indian Pakistani-ish restaurant. Uh, well, you would know it from New Haven, Tandoor. And he talked to the people in Urdu and said, you know, make it, you know, make it the way we like it. Uh, along with, uh, you know, my mostly Caucasian other sweetmates. And I think I drink more water. I, I might have been in danger of dying from, you know, water poisoning that night, just from how much water I drank trying to survive the food that we ate. But yeah, I know a lot of Malaysians that can't actually tolerate spice much at all. And then others who have as much tolerance as the Americans I've known. But uh, it certainly is not the spicy food mecca I thought it might be. Hmm. That's too bad. Well, it's all right. I've, I've invested in some um, hot sauce and so forth. And so actually, yeah, uh, I've had a real taste for spicy food recently. I've been saving up the uh, Domino's here. You know, the chili flakes that you can put on your pizza. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they give you, I don't know if they do this with delivery in the States, but they, they always bring you like several little packets of those chili flakes when you get uh, pizza delivery here. And I usually don't put them on my pizzas, but I do save them because uh, I am sort of like someone's grandmother and that I can't like throw any of the stuff away when it's given to me. But I've recently taken to just carrying around like the, a little packet of spicy chili flakes in my shirt pocket and putting it on whatever I'm eating. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, just to just to tie off the uh, McDonald's thing, uh, you've seen, I assume, they, this comes up like every two years or so, like clockwork in the news when people say like, Oh my God, McDonald's food, it never decays. Have you, this came around again just recently and it always annoys me. Oh no, I have mercifully missed that. Uh, does it drive you as crazy as it drives me or is that just me? Well, it's like the Twinkie thing, right? It, it's, you know, under the right conditions, you can keep anything from decaying. Well, exactly. I mean, people want, they really want McDonald's food and stuff to be full. Like, I'm not saying it's good for you, right? Because one thing it is full of is cholesterol and, you know, and salt and so forth. It's, it's certainly not health food, but it's really no more full of preservatives than the food that you buy in the supermarket. You know, if you look at the recipes for something like a Big Mac, it's basically bread like you would buy in the supermarket and hamburger like you would buy in the supermarket and salt and pepper, you know? And the bread has some preservatives in it, but no more than the loaf of bread that you would buy, you know, at Stop and Shop or whatever. And the thing that makes it not decay is basically that it's dry and salty. Well, you know, you put people in dry and salty conditions, they don't decay either. You get mummies instead. Right, exactly. And, you know, when people were coming across the ocean, you know, to settle, the, to settle North America in ships, or just in general, what do you do if you want to preserve meat for months and months on end? Jerky. You put it in a bunch of salt. Yeah. Well, you dry it out and, and or put it in a bunch of salt. So it makes sense if you have a dry salty hamburger and you know you set it out in the open air so it dries out even more it tends to dry out sufficiently that it can't go bad before it gets enough bacteria uh, or mold or whatever in it you know to to really take root and yeah it's not rocket science a lot of foods don't decay if you leave them out just because they are too dry or too salty or whatever for for those things to thrive in them i mean anyway a hamburger that you made yourself would be no different, really, if it were as, as... It's also, I think, about the thinness of the meat, right? Like, uh, that dries it out so much more quickly. So if you made a thin, salty hamburger at home, it'd be pretty much the same. Someone actually has a website where they did that. I can't, I can't yeah. find it now, though. It, it's something I just feel compelled to debunk whenever I see it, because, you know, 
uh, I certainly am not, well, I am kind of a McDonald's apologist or a, a junk food <laughs> apologist in general. But, the screw tape Happy Meals. Uh, yeah, but I mean, the thing... <laughs> I don't know any other ap- apologetics, sorry. No, you don't have to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Although you are a Canadian now, I do expect you to be apologizing much more often for everything. Didn't I send you an email where I said seafood play by mistake? Uh, well, yes, but I, that's the kind of thing that like just randomly sneaks into the language anyway, I think. No, but I mean, I wasn't doing it to be a yeah. entertaining. You were, just, you were just doing it? Soon I will make passive-aggressive signs to put up around my hospital also. <laughs> uh, I didn't know so the Canadians are passive-aggressive people. Well, French Canadians you know are. how they're like... Uh, like, for example, if you were at... Like IOL or Yale, there'd be a sign that says like you must wear your badge at all times. You must oh, introduce yes. yourself to patients. The one at the M and I says, I'm not making this up. It says, our policies are that you should wear your badge at. Or no, it says we would like you to wear your badge at all times, and you should above the waist, and you should introduce yourself to patients when you meet them. These mm-hmm. are our policies. It would be nice if you'd respect them. <laughs> that is very passive aggressive. <laughs> Yeah, Malaysian is a weird thing, actually. One, one funny thing about here is, um, you know, and again, I can't really criticize people too much because uh, my ancestors came here and basically to Malaysia you know, took over the place. Well, not my, not like my dad, but you know, <laughs> the the white people from whom I'm descended mostly, you know, were the were colonialized uh, Malaysia for some time and imposed their English on them. Uh, so I can't fault many Malaysians for not having perfect English, right? Because it's not their, well, some of their native tongue, but it's not, you know, the indigenous tongue of the region. But one sort of weird thing is that even though the English is not very good sometimes, it will be far more wordy and formal than it would be in the States or in the UK or something. So, like, we had a, an automatic door that wasn't working in one of the buildings recently, and there's a sign on the automatic door that said something like, we regret to inform you that this facility is not available at this time or something like that. And, you know, we're working very hard to, you know, ensure it's speedy return to service or something. And it was in not very good English, but it was in very formal, not very good English where, you know, in the States or Britain or whatever, you would just say out of order or out of service or something like that. Right. But for some reason, people like when they do send out an email or something like that, uh, it's extremely formal and full of these kind of stock phrases of formality, but uh, often often in a hilariously garbled way because they don't really understand the phrases they're using. That's funny. We get that too, actually. Oh, yeah? So, like, my elevator is being replaced in, in, our, yeah. in my apartment building. And, yeah, the note in English was actually less comprehensible than the parallel French translation on the other side. And, and much wordier also? Yeah. Yeah. Weird how people will do that because, you know, I, that is not my inclination, you know, when I, I don't speak any foreign language fluently, but uh, to the extent that I speak any foreign language, you know, I'm always like, me like schnitzel, give me one drink, please, you know. Yeah, that was my German was a lot of das und das und yeah. zwei das. Still, still now, you know, yeah, it's, it's often like, how much? This much. Thank you. You know, I, I certainly am not saying the equivalent of, like, it would, great me, it would greatly please me if you were able to provide me with the following services. You know, that's not what I've learned in the language. 
Although I guess, you know, if you get like a stock phrase, maybe that is it. You just, you know, if you don't know what to do, you just sort of start pasting stock phrases together that gets you in sort of the right direction. Well, and that is, it actually agrees with sort of the, um, the local way of learning stuff because education here, for better or for worse, is, uh, well, mostly for worse, actually, <laughs> is, uh, is, you know, it's heavily memorization-based. Um, How do you feel, professor? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, it's, it's, it's very frustrating sometimes actually, because like, I think we take it for granted in the States, how much we are taught to like do critical reasoning and stuff and figure out why things are the way they are. And it's really, you've read surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, right? That book suckered me into going to grad school. <laughs> uh, his evil plan. Uh, yes, it's not all doing, uh, doing physics equations at strip clubs, unfortunately. So we should add that this is a, an autobiography of Richard Feynman, who is a sort of an awesome physicist. Um, I think my brother would call him a life artist. Yeah, and, and a Nobel Prize winner, and a generally like eccentric, awesome dude. Yeah, so he he was a Nobel Prize winner. He, uh, I think he recorded an album of him playing bongos. Yeah, he was a bongo player for some time. Uh, I think he was a painter too. Uh, he worked yeah. on the Manhattan Project, where he basically caused a lot of trouble by picking people's locks. Right. And he did a lot of his theoretical physics work sitting in strip clubs. Yeah, I think the rationale was... Academia is exactly like that now. <laughs> what was his... His rationale was basically like, the food's cheap, it's not very busy during the day, the scenery's not bad. It's kind of Barney Stinson-esque. Yeah. I mean, it's not entirely a bad theory. He was also a bit of a, a lady charmer guy, so that might have fed into it a bit. Did I already try to pitch you on my uh, Richard Feynman narrates a... Uh... The Maltese Falcon? <laughs> no, I have not. Well, how would that go? Because he does sound like... The funny thing is he's this brilliant guy, but he does sound like a kind of tough Brooklyn dude. Exactly. So it'd be called the Maltese Feynman. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Or actually, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman would work too. It always sort of bothered me that it was surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman, and not surely Not Dr. Dr. Feynman, yeah. Well, maybe he was joking before he finished his PhD. It, it might have been, before, yeah. That that well, there was a story called that in the book, and I can't remember if maybe it was before he finished his doctorate. Um, hard to say. You will be completely unsurprised to know that I have the book right here. Yeah, I have it in the other room. I mean, I can't reach the wall, but uh, yeah, it's close by. But anyway, uh, but so this is a bit of a, a well, this is not off track. But you know, one cool thing about Feynman, and if you listeners have not ever heard Richard Feynman speak, there's a million great YouTube videos of him. But the great thing about Feynman is uh, he's able to explain things in very natural language, right? And, you know, talking about quantum physics and stuff, the natural language is always going to be an approximation. But uh, it's pretty good approximations that he gives you, right? So, you know, he'll say something like, well, you see, the strong nuclear force is, uh, you can think of it as like a rubber band that holds two things together. Oh, no, no, no. We have a much, we have a much better Feynman example. Hold on one second. We could, we could... Well, we'll splice it in. But it's where he talks about waves in a pool. Okay. Uh, it's, it's hilarious. And uh, I can't find the YouTube link. I'll just play it. Pool. Somebody dives in, and she's not too pretty. So I can think of something <laughs> else. I think of the waves and things that have formed in the water. And uh, when there's lots of people have dived in the pool, there's a very great choppiness of all these waves all over the water. And to think that it's possible, maybe, that in those ways is a clue as to what's happening in the pool. Yeah, so that's Richard Feynman. <laughs> right, right. So, so yeah, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a short explanation. explanation, but, explanation uh, uh, whoa, what just happened there? I think Feynman's ghost is coming back to haunt us. 
<laughs> so, so it's very natural. I mean, the one I was starting to go into was basically, you know, if you want to think about the strong force, like most of the forces we, we see in everyday life, right? Like magnetism or uh, of gravity or whatever get weaker with distance, but the strong force gets stronger with distance up to a point. And I don't know if this is his explanation, but the one I always hear is like, well, imagine a rubber band holding two things. You pull them further apart, the band pulls them together again. You pull them far enough apart, the band breaks. Now, in this case, that's not a perfect analogy because something different happens when the strong force uh, distance limit gets exceeded. But anyway, point being, like, that's a pretty good, quick explanation of how a very complex phenomenon works, right? But anyway, so there's this chapter in the book about when he went to Brazil, I think, and... You know, he, would, he was observing the students there, and they were all able to recite these equations verbatim and so forth. But then he would ask them, like, so let's say I have a such and such. You know, I, like, roll a ball down a hill at this speed or whatever. Like, what happens? You know, he'd set up some basic kind of physics situation. But, you know, they, they would have no idea how to actually translate these equations they'd memorized and these definitions that they memorized into real-life applications. They didn't really, you know, they, they had memorized these things, but didn't really understand them. And that's, you know, it's not the case everywhere, but uh, it is pretty characteristic of the educational system here as well, um, that there's a lot of memorization, not a lot of focus on understanding. Maybe you should be the Richard Feynman of India, or of Malaysia. Well, I mean, I do, like, what I find is that our brighter students certainly are able to, to overcome that quite a bit in you know, the three years that they're with us, uh, you know, I think, I think it takes, you know, cause we are a British school and most of our people are, well, all of our people are non-local in our department. And, uh, you know, so we do teach things in a more Western fashion and I'm, I'm always explaining things like the way I understand them. Um, not with some fancy sounding textbook sentence that is, you know, sounds good, but doesn't, doesn't make the thing easy to understand necessarily. But, you know, it, it certainly takes a while to kind of break people out of this memorization-based mentality. Uh, but we were going somewhere with this, and now I've completely forgotten. Uh, still to translations. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, so I think that is how... So, like, when I took the Malay class, I saw how they tried to... In no offense, I doubt she's a podcast listener, but the woman who was teaching us, you know, her idea of teaching us the language, uh, and granted it was a short, like, 10-week class or whatever, was basically to hand us a printout with a bunch of phrases on it and be like, all right, memorize these. There was no, like, teaching us about, or very little of, like, teaching us about the grammatical structure of the language, you know, how you make the words with, uh, as we talked about earlier, like, Malay is kind of one of these uh, agglutinative languages that you start with a root word and then add various uh, prefixes and suffixes and infixes to it to, like, make new words. There was none of that. There was no grammar or linguistics. There was just, like, all right, these are the phrases, learn them. And I think that's how people here have learned to speak English, too. They've just learned, like, how to string these phrases together. And, you know, sometimes the consequences are kind of hilarious. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can sort of... On the other hand, that's sort of how babies learn. I can never tell if that, like, actually works for adults or not, though. Yeah, I mean, this, I have always... I've, I've been a hardcore... The, the classic example is when I took French myself. Uh, which, is oui. we've already revealed... What? We. Oui. We oui? yes, I know that much. You know, the classic example is uh, is the phrase. Although I did, you know, as we said before, I got a C minus in French, but not for lack of. I beat course. you in Japanese. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, it was not for you know. What's funny is it would have been a fail probably if I hadn't like basically aced the test. But uh, it was definitely weighed down by my attendance scores. 
Oh, I think that was the only thing that saved me. Like, you're clearly trying, you're just not good at this. <laughs> no, uh, to the extent that, like, you can understand French in a semester of French, I, I understood it okay, but the great example of this is the phrase, um, a phrase like qu'est-ce que c'est in French, right? Which to an English speaker looks insane, because uh, it seems to have many more letters and hyphens and apostrophes in it than such a simple phrase as qu'est-ce que c'est should have, right? This still drives me nuts, to be totally honest. Well, but... Why write them if you're not going to say them? Well, that's true. I mean, sh well, again, we're, we're coming from a language that has some of the most bizarre pronunciation rules in the world, so I can't really... I mean, I can't true. really throw stones there. Uh, but, yeah. But what's weird is... I mean, you always one always learns in French class on date like two that qu'est-ce que c'est means, like, what is it? But it really means, literally, what is it that it is, right? That is how you would translate qu'est-ce que c'est grammatically, if you did it word for word, right? Yeah, I haven't really thought of that before. Well, because it's que. Like yeah, what. no, no, you're totally correct. And s, like, is... I have to, like... Yeah, it is. Yeah, and then another que that, that is now a that, and say, which is a, you know, contracted, you know, it is. So, or... Right, so what is it that it is? And to me, that makes much more sense, and it's easier to spell and easier to, you know, know something about the language than when you're like, okay, I see how this language is structured now. So I certainly favor a structure-based... How, how do you remember that if you don't have any, like, framework to hang it on, you know? Yeah, no, that's a... Hmm. That's going to bug me all day. So I have an, another foreign language question for you. Okay. So I went, as I was telling you earlier, I went to this, uh, there's a series of concerts that are free that are right outside my house. So right. whenever I get bored on the weekends, I just wander around down there. And I found it was much easier to understand them when they were singing than when they were actually just talking. Yeah, that's what people say a lot, yeah. Oh, really? I, I've heard that said before. Okay. I, that, I had never, I always would have guessed it would go the opposite way. Well, another weird thing is, um, I, to me at least, it always sounds to me like when people sing, their accent goes away. Yes, so that's that's what I think it was that she didn't sound quite so Quebec-y, instead of right. more just like a French person. Well, or if you even think about like keeping it in English, like if you think about the Beatles, when they're singing a song, they don't sound nearly as Liverpudlian as you know what I mean. Like they, you can still tell they're English, but it's not nearly as strong uh, an accent as it is when they're speaking, right? Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Hmm. Uh, and so I think it is true that probably when you, well, it's probably a few different things. One of which is that the cadence is dictated by the music and not by the linguistics as much, right? Oh, and it's probably much slower too. Well, it's much slower, but you know, one of the hardest things I find, like when I start to learn a foreign language, and I assume you might be the same way, is that, you know, that old far side cartoon about how dogs perceive humans? Yep. <laughs> you know, the one I'm talking about. Hey, so this is kind of the way I hear foreign languages when I just know a little bit of them. You know, so the far side cartoon is basically like the guy saying like, well, you see ginger, blah, blah, blah. And, and well, that was, that was a terrible example, actually, because what the dog sees is blah, 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 ginger, blah, 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 ginger, blah, 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 ginger, right? But what I get is like a pop out effect, right? Where I'll be hearing like blah, 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 blah. And then I'll hear the one word I know in the sentence. Yes. Then you get all excited. You're like, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, oh, I understand. No, wait, I understood just that that one word. So, you know, part of that is that I think, and I might know more of the words than just that one, but that one was the only one that was isolated enough for me to catch it, right? Yep. 
So I think it is the case that a big part of it is just like learning to hear the cadence of speech. And that's not as much an issue in singing, obviously. How does singing work in like a tonal language like Chinese, I wonder? I don't know. I don't know if the um, I don't know if you can ignore the tone or if the tone is built into the musical progression. I'm not sure. You think it's just you have to sort of pick your words so that the tone works or change your melody? I'm not sure. Find a Chinese person and let's ask. Um, there are many of them at my university. So, uh, yes, I will check on that. OK, I'll send you a net. Dope to catch a Chinese person with. Mm -hmm. And a durian. Uh, <laughs> I'll just, yeah, I'll just put a durian. Uh, you know, under a box propped up with a stick, and I'm sure I'll catch a bunch of Malaysians that will answer my questions for me. Oh God, we're going on two hours again. Yeah, so we should. Oh, so we should talk about a couple other of our topics. But uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, partly just personally, but maybe this also relates to what we were talking about earlier. Uh, have you been to the restaurant Au Noir in uh, Montreal yet? I have not. Is it good? Oh, is this the one that where the blind people work? Yeah, this is the one that, where the food is served in pitch black, and the wait staff are all blind people um and you eat your meal in complete darkness yeah i've heard of that i, I want to try it uh it's kind of expensive but not like insanely expensive i think it might cost you like 50 bucks or something for a oh why did I, why did i click on the french menu although i guess the dollar sign is the same well yes uh 34 34 dollars that's, that's pretty reasonable for like an entree or right well like it's a it's a prefix it's prefix menu, isn't it yeah yeah uh, yeah, I mean, so it's a nice-ish night out, but not anything insane. No, that might be worth it. I thought it was fairly cool. There's one in New York, too. It's ninja-themed, though. Oh, uh, that's... It's <laughs> a little strange. Well, because, you know, they sneak around in the dark. I guess, but how much do you need to sneak when it's completely pitch black? Also, how do you know if it's ninja-themed if it's completely pitch black? <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> Maybe they just tell people a different thing every week. Like, oh yes, this one is uh, it's all pirate space themed. themed. <laughs> yeah, black hole themed. <laughs> hey, want to open a restaurant? Yes, it's it can be any theme you imagine. But yeah, it's pretty cool. But uh, I was just going to say, like, uh, is there a Malaysian one? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, and frankly, I want to see whatever food I'm eating in Malaysia. I don't trust uh, Malaysian food enough for the most part, to uh, eat in pitch blackness. But um, it is interesting. And, you know, we were talking quite a bit because I went there with a bunch of psychologists and neuroscientists. Um, so, of course, we were talking a lot about how the presence or absence of light affected the taste and, of the food and so forth. But hmm, I wonder if I could get my boss to expense it that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think we had any great insights about it. Blah, blah, blah. can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, Attention, FRSQ, pay no attention to this man. <laughs> right. So the website is kind of squeaking me out because it keeps talking about how it's a sensual experience until I realize that that is actually completely the right word. It is the right word. Well, and it is true because part of it is you experience your food in a way that you don't normally insofar as like to find it, you often have to touch it with your fingers, which you don't often do when you're eating like steak, right? But well, not in public. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, certain food you do, right? Like, I, I, I know quite well what the what pizza feels like. But it's true, but you normally don't have to, like, stumble around looking for the pizza. Right, exactly. Well, I mean, there have been times. Three <laughs> in the morning. There might have been some stumbling on the way to the pizza, but uh, anyway. But yeah, um, so it is, you know, you certainly feel your food a lot more than you ordinarily would, because you're punting around for it uh, in, the, in the pitch blackness. But 
I suspect we would have all had like maybe the more intense taste experience that you might predict if we had been shutting up and not talking to each other about the experience. That's very meta. Well, you know, because our senses were largely focused on like discussing the experiences we were having it. So probably not the like uh, deprivation chamber it otherwise could have been. But anywho. Uh, so do you want to talk, do you want to do a lightning round of one or two other topics? Cause, uh, sure. Yeah. It has been sort of food heavy. The naked mole rat thing was cool, but, uh, uh go into it. I, I admit well, I did not read it. So I would love to hear. About okay. It. So this is lightning round stuff here. Uh, cause this is actually pretty new stuff. This was on, uh, well, it was on the news portion of science magazine. So, you know, the popular section, but I think the research itself was published, uh, also in science or nature, or a good journal like that. Um, basically, it's just uh, discussing a new series of studies on naked mole rats and why they don't appear to get cancer. So they live quite a long time for, uh, well, for rodents. I think uh, I think something like 20, 20 years or something like that. Pretty long Whoa, time. Oh, really? Uh, maybe not, but let's see. That's a long time for a rat. Well, they, it says they outlive things like beavers and gray squirrels by... Beavers and gray squirrels last a couple of decades, but naked mole rats outlive those larger animals by 10 years. So yeah, they could live up to like 30 years or so. I guess a squirrel would live much longer if it did not run in the middle of a road. Well, right. Um, and of course, like, you know, some things live much longer in captivity than they do when they're not being eaten by other things, right? It apparently holds the record for the oldest rodent at 28 years. Okay, there you go. Yes, I'm older than the oldest rat. Yes. <laughs> and also hairier and, uh, you know... Generally, I think, slightly better looking, because naked mole rats... Sorry, that was a bit of an insult. Significantly better looking. <laughs> wow, backhanded. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean that. But uh, yes, I think one can definitively say that we are better looking than naked mole rats. Because, um, yeah, they're pretty pretty ugly looking. But um, anyway, they don't get cancer, right? Uh, they have never been... Anyway, they've never been observed to get cancer in any laboratory setting. And anyway, the way they think it is due to... So this is a group... Um, Let's maybe give them a shout out. Uh, the, the person cited here on Science Mag is Vera Gorbanova of Ra University of Rochester. Um, but anyway, they, they studied them for a while after, after noticing this, and they think it's, they currently think it's because of basically a substance in the cellular matrix or you know in the intercellular spaces. So just the spaces between cells, it's much. The consistency is much different than like a lot of other mammal cells or animal cells in general. It's uh, it's basically kind of a gooey stuff that seems to keep cells from clumping together in quite the same way. And they think it's because of this kind of physical substance um, controlling the way the cells kind of stick to each other that prevents things from clumping together into tumors and therefore like cancer cells kind of uh, are limited in how much they can spread or, you know, or, uh, you know, individual cells might become cancerous, but then they just kind of die out because they don't clump into these big, fast-growing tumors. Um, so I just thought that was kind of cool and kind of a neat... Uh, that is cool. ...neat study. You know, it's one of those things that, like, can you use this to cure cancers? Who knows? Because without genetically re-engineering... So they, they went on and did this, like, they added... Um, wait a minute, I... It looks like they knocked... Did they knock out a tumor suppressor? Well, right, they induced, or, or at least, uh, yeah, to, you know, to, to produce cancerous cells. But, uh, yeah, the na naked mole rats still did not show cancer cells, or 
tumors producing, or, uh, well, uncontrolled growth, the article says. But, yes, when they did do things, so they don't go into details here, uh, but when they did things to uh, interfere with this, it's basically a complex sugar, I believe, that is present in this uh, extracellular matrix. Uh, so when they interfered with it, they did get tumors uh, not only in vitro, but also in live animals. So they say the next step is, of course, to knock in the gene for this uh, complex sugar into like a rat and see if, or a mouse probably, and then see if that makes the mice cancer resistant. But of course, the problem is, can you use this to treat cancer in humans without genetically re-engineering us and, and for those, of course. But we apparently have some, but we have about 15 grams per person. Right, and it's, I believe, a different form also, right? Yeah, yeah. the molar at one looks like it's way larger. Well, it says it's about five times the size of the the variant found in mats, rice, uh, mice, rats, and humans. That that seems larger. It's a weird-looking molecule. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked it up. But anyway, so we don't have to go into detail about that, but that's kind of neat. We'll link the uh, Science Mag article. Cool. Um, do I have anything? Uh, what was stuff that lives in clouds? Was oh, that the, so was I was that super the bacteria layer? I was super excited about this, and... For the record, uh, yeah, so I was super excited about this. I found it, like, somewhere random, and then two days later it was on the front page of Reddit. But I heard of it first, oh, yeah. damn it, so I'm a science hipster. I, I thought that, because I actually did see uh, the same thing on, or something that I thought was what you were alluding to on Reddit, but uh, I'll give you I'll give you cred. Okay, thank you. I, can I get some skinny jeans and, uh, you know, fancy glasses? Yeah, sure, I'll get right on that. Please don't. Yeah. But yeah, so apparently stuff lives in clouds. Uh, so actually, I guess this has been known since, well, for a long time, but clouds are apparently just chock-a-block full of, uh, bacteria and algae and, uh, things like that. And, you know, presumably passing birds. Right. <laughs> yeah. So apparently clouds, especially like the big thunder clouds contain a fair amount of water. And, uh, this I thought right. was kind of neat. So, uh, bacteria sort of can get sucked up into clouds and, you know, hang out there and travel around. Right. Uh, but one of the cool things is that some bacteria might actually be able to form their own clouds. So they release this, this substance. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's dimethyl sulfide or sulfite. Yeah. And it serves as sort of a, thing, a nucleation site. So it lets water droplets sort of clump together and form into clouds. Right. And so this uh, sort of produces wind, which sucks the bacteria sort of off the surface of the water where they get dragged up into the clouds. And then they disperse themselves that way. So I just thought that was kind of crazy because it's sort of a staple of science fiction, right? You have these sort of like big bloopy jellyfish things living in the clouds. Yeah. Uh, but it turns out it's real. There's stuff living in clouds. Yeah. And these are, well, it says they found E. coli in their samples. Uh, I was, what, what I was wondering is if it was like, you know, terrestrial bacteria versus, you know, different stuff that lives up there. I think it's a mix, uh, but it's, you yeah. know, as you'd imagine, fairly hard to just like go into a cloud. Yeah. Um, but they found things like... I, st I store all of my bacteria in the cloud. But I think they found bacteria like, you know, like ocean bacteria, like way, way inland in a cloud. And so it sort of goes both ways. So they make form the clouds and then they come, come back down to earth on the rain. And then the cycle sort of repeats in a yeah. gross propagation of stuff. Well, it says in the, in the caption here, E. coli streptococcus. So it does sound like at least some of it is pretty ordinary stuff. Oh, so this is... Related to that. So some people think that it might actually be how, like, you know, diseases can spread. That they go all the way up to the uh, 30,000 feet above uh, sea level and, and drop back down again? 
I think that is like super duper speculative, but uh, it would be kind of cool. That, that sounds like the plot of uh, you know another apocalyptic fiction type movie. Add that to the list. Yeah. Actually, sp- speaking of disease spreads, I overheard this cool fact at a coffee shop last night. Okay. So you know how you can track uh, like influenza or whatever around. You know, you make a graph of how many people have it in each spot, like per week. Right. So it tracks the flow of money like surprisingly well. So you know, if you if you take down oh, like yeah. the serial numbers and see where they pop up next, which I yeah. guess I mean it makes a lot of sense, and it's sort of blindingly well, obvious in one way and also really cool in another. Well, they both. I I mean, I mean, there's the. They often say that you know one of the main places you get bacteria from people is uh, is on money, but uh, it's also true that I guess they both just correlate with like the number of human to human interactions of any sort, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so unfortunately, I think probably because we are now at yeah, we should we should probably shut up. You know, the two things that we pledged we would talk more about this time explicitly in episode two, uh, which was algorithm uh screenplay analysis algorithms and this thing about uh ignoring background motion and its relation to iq we didn't talk about either of those we just talked mostly about food i really need to read that paper so we'll talk about that next time for real yes for real z's this time uh we'll talk about screenplay algorithms and uh and uh and iq and background motion um and that's all i think for lightning round stuff what is this about whiskey stones Oh, is that eh, a lightning round topic? Nah, that's not that interesting. What is a whiskey stone? I don't even know. All right, maybe it is a lightning round topic. All right, yeah, tell me what whiskey stones are. And, and so there are a bunch of Kickstarters for things you can put into your uh, either your whiskey or your coffee to heat or cool it as, as necessary. Right. And they're all kind of crap. What? Why? You mean these are just like artificial ice cubes that don't melt your stuff, right? Exactly. They're, they're well, the whiskey stones are in fact stones, which are supposed to have some mystical connection with the whiskey. Um, but the thing is. So, so, you know, materials have their specific heat. So, you know, it takes like a certain amount of heat to heat up one gram of this one degree. Right. Uh, And the thing is, though, that's not actually how your beverages get cooled. Uh, So if you have like, it takes way, way more energy to cool, uh, to turn one gram of liquid or one gram of ice into one gram of liquid than it does to like change the temperature. So the whiskey stones actually don't do crap, basically. Oh, okay. So, right. So just putting a cold, solid object into a beverage does not actually make it that cold. Right. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to look up the actual number, but it's it's a huge factor. Well, that makes quite a bit of sense, right? Because, like, well, I mean, I guess it does to me, right? Because the thing that, I mean, you're basically, when ice melts, you're basically breaking the crystalline structure of the ice. And it's breaking that crystalline structure in addition to raising the temperature of the actual molecules. That, that requires a, lot, a large amount of energy to put it in. In other words, it's taking energy out of the beverage, which makes it colder, right? Yep. Yeah. So, in other words, if you don't have a state change uh, and you just have proximity to a colder thing, that doesn't do much, huh? Yeah. I'm trying to... Uh, what's the definition of a joule? Do you remember? You're the definition of a joule to me, Matt Krauss. What do you mean now? I didn't know there was a technical definition of a joule. <laughs> I was foolish enough to just Google, and of course I got Jewel the Singer. No, no, J-O-U-L-E. Oh, a Jewel. Oh, sorry. I was like, where, where are we going? I was thinking Stones and Jewels. All right. Neither of which has anything to do with Jewel the uh, Singer. Okay, so one Jewel is the, energy, the heat required to raise the temperature of a gram of water by about a quarter of a degree Celsius. 
Right. All right, so one joule gets you a quarter degree. However, going from water at zero degrees to ice at zero degrees takes 334 joules. So that's, okay, you know, wow. that, that is a crap ton more energy, to use the technical right. scientific term. Yes. Or I think that's one, one and a half metric butt, butt loads. Yes, I believe so. Um, sorry, I was just trying to think of more, more Jewel the Singer related jokes. Well, she's from Alaska. So, you How know. many jewels does it take to save your soul or something like that? <laughs> uh. So yeah, so don't buy whiskey stones. Um, but I learned this trick, which is like, this is veering dangerously close to like hints from Heloise or something. Yeah. But if, if you have a, a beer which is warm and you would like it to become cold, what you can yes. do is wrap it in a wet paper towel and throw it in the freezer for like 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. And so the, you know, the water on the paper towel freezes because there's not very much of it. And then that sucks Whoa. out, you know, this massive number of joules of... Yeah, that's clever. So you can go from like a room temperature beer or soda to a cold one in probably 10 minutes. Yeah, that's cool. So basically this is for things that are sealed that you want to cool down faster. Yeah, but I imagine you could do it with like something that's not sealed. Well, if it's not sealed, you can drop in an ice cube, right? So... Well, so even if you do drop in the ice cube, right, what you should do is stir it to get the sort of... Uh, to get the melting going. Well, right. To get, to get the ice continually coming into proximity with the warmest parts of the beverage. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly noticed that um, just around here where, like, you know, cold beverages are a, a way of life. Like, you know, if I just drop the ice in and wait a minute or two, you, one part of the beverage can still be quite warm if you, if you aren't constantly stirring it. Surprisingly so, because actually, I don't know, I guess I never noticed that before here where things are so much hotter. But you should totally try the paper towel thing. It works like a champ. I should try that. Well, so my question is, I guess, um, I guess the thing to do is if you don't want your beverage watered down, just have, you know, water, just have regular ice, but encased in some kind of like plastic, you know, casing like, like, like the ice cubes, like, like the ones that you buy, right? Like the artificial ice cubes you buy, which I assume are really just plastic cubes with water in them. Yeah. So we had some of those kids that were, yeah, they're like little spheres with water or something in them. And so those those free, go between freezing and not freezing, right? So you get the sort of... Right, so so they would work on, like, whiskey stones. Yep. The whiskey stones are literally chunks of rocks sold to hipsters for insane amounts of money. So you just freeze the rocks and drop them in your whiskey, huh? Yeah. Is that, that's not where the phrase on the rocks actually comes from, is it? I don't think so. I mean, I assume that's just more like, uh, ice looks like rocks. Are you also on Wikipedia? Maybe. It doesn't say anything useful. Well, we now know it's an album by the Byron Band, and it's also a band, the a British Dutch Brazilian rock band. That is a genre I would. What's most interesting about this is um, it claims it's an international rock band formed by British Dutch and Brazilian musicians, but as far as I can tell, it's only got two people in it. Hmm. Okay, no, they they've got some other. It's one British guy and one Dutch guy, and then they got a bunch of Brazilians kind of uh, backing them up. How many Brazilians, you ask? Brazilians and Brazilians of them. <laughs> Thank you, zombie lisping fine man. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, Sagan. Sagan. Damn it, that was Sagan. What? <gasps> Isn't oh. billions and billions Sagan? Yes. Billions and billions, yes. Uh, th yes, Carl Sagan loved to say billions. We should have a physicist clip show at some point. Yeah, well, we could, we could uh, kind of fold them in. We could also play um, one of those... What was the what was the thing you linked me with uh, Brian Cox or whoever it was? No, Brian. Oh, Symphony of one. Science. Yeah, Symphony of Science. 
Well, I kind of briefly thought about that as like our theme song, but I think uh, I think it doesn't work quite well as a, quite as well as the theme song. But maybe maybe we could play it at the end of something. But anyway, all right. Well, I suppose we should. Oh, we should sign off. We should also introduce ourselves afterwards, so you can cut that in the beginning. <laughs> oh yes. So, well, I think it's good for. Uh, let's just do the introduction at the end. So, hello, welcome to our podcast. Yeah, exactly. Hello. Uh, oh, shit, I, I ruined that. Let's try it again. No, I think it's actually funnier if we uh, actually do the introduction at the very end of the podcast, and and the first you know hour and forty five minutes were just a digression. <laughs> it would be it would be very typical too. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, welcome to what remains of our podcast. I'm Matt Kraus. Uh, I'm Matt Johnson, and uh, yes, we'd like to talk to you about science. Um, so go back in time, an hour and a half, or whatever this episode ends up being, and uh, listen to it. And now... And today we will we'll have talked off. about... Uh... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, that was a great discussion there, Matt Kraus. So uh, I guess we should be going now. All right, see you next time. Uh, well, uh, wait, before we do that, we should do... It's going to be so disjointed. Uh, we should do our like website and everything. So um, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to contact us, or if you'd like to send us hate mail or you know pictures of yourself or whatever... Um, we have a website. It's sshhmm at uh, ah, sshhmm dot wordpress dot com. Uh, our email address. And by the way, this is a minor correction to last time. I think once we briefly said it was sshhmm at gmail, but that's not true. That's some random person. And uh, I've gotten enough uh, emails directed to the wrong Matthew Johnson that I'm very sensitive to this. So don't email that random person, whoever they are. It's super science happy hour all run together at gmail.com. Uh, we couldn't get the initials for that one. And uh, listen to us on iTunes. There's a link to the RSS feed on the website. You can also listen to episodes, uh, stream them directly from the website. Um, and if you have feedback about what other podcatchers you might want us to integrate with, uh, let us know. Or topics. We love topics. Topics. If you'd like to be a guest star, uh, we should probably, once we get our technical stuff sorted out, we'll have some of our friends on, hopefully as guest stars, but, uh, most of our friends are neuroscientists. So if you're like, if you are Stephen Hawking or, um, another sort of physicist or chemist or what, astrobiologist or whatever, uh, and would like to come on, uh, we'd like to have you. So let us know. All right. See you next time. Adios. We should well. We should yeah. Count off. Three, three. Two, oh, oh, we're going down. Sorry. Oh, three, uh, three, two, two uh, balls. Let's count up. Do the zero, one, one and two, two and three, three. Wait, why? Are, we had the, we did this. <laughs> we did this right before. Uh, so wait, we weren't counting the right way. Well, yeah, but we need to be in sync, right? So. Let's try again. All right. Uh, one and two, two and, and three, three and four. And four. Are, are you, you're coming in behind we're pretty, me. Or you, no, we're pretty synced. Oh, it might be Skype delay. I think there's a lot of Skype delay this time because I'm hearing you like, uh, I'm hearing your numbers on my ands. Wait, I have a much better idea. What? what go why, ahead. Why don't I just unplug my headphones? And then it will be synced by, by default.
you mean just for a minute while I... Yeah, while well, I, for the count. Yeah, if you want. I mean, I think we should try to synchronize also, but... Uh, okay. You, right, uh, you, you say things loudly. All right. Hello. Hello. My name, My is, name Matt is Matt Johnson. I am the world's, am the world's greatest lover. Greatest lover. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, that won't sink at all. Just that, that I, just just that I <laughs> your computer just refused just to make that sound. <laughs> she said she was surprised by how not serious we are. <laughs> Does she have some misconception that you are a profoundly serious man? I mean, I have a monocle and a top hat and everything. Right. So yeah. <laughs> right. Um, like a veritable Nick Turk Brown. What's that? Like a veritable Nick Turk Brown up here. Oh. Well, you're turning Canadian. I really think so. <laughs> well, uh, is that better or worse than Japanese? I don't know. Uh, by the way, have you looked at our uh, download statistics recently? Who are these people? I, I don't know. But it's still way more than I expected. I mean, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, sponsorship or anything yet. But that's still, you know... Shocking. Who would you who would you imagine would sponsor us? I don't know. Somebody that gives us mugs at SFN. Oh no, I want the laser pen. I never got a laser pen. Is that just a pen with a laser pointer? No, they write your name on it with a laser. Oh, which is supposed yeah. to make you think that this laser would be good for like delicately manipulating uh, your cells. I, that is that is kind of cool. But of all the mental images that laser pen evoked when you said that, that is the least interesting of them. Well, you wanted like a like a lightsaber fountain pen. Well, like something that I could, you know, write. You mean it like burns your words into the paper. Exactly, I kind want, of like a Harry Potter I, thing. I need this. Make it happen. Sounds like something Dolores Umbridge would use as punishment. They did have that quill. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you just you know replace that with a laser. Hmm. Yeah. Um, That'll be our giveaway in like twenty years. <laughs> the Super Science Happy Hour laser pen with your name engraved on it, but with a regular pen. Ooh, good, good touch. <laughs> the booth is just some guy with a sharpie. And then you know, if we made the laser strong enough, the pen really could be mightier than the sword at that stage. That's an well, would it be stronger than a lightsaber? Well, I mean, it would be essentially a lightsaber, I guess. But um, more like know. a light fountain pen. But what you have to like keep dipping it in the in the light well <laughs> to get more light. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, okay, sure. So this goes nicely with that, actually. Oh, wait, sorry, you're Cyloning it a little bit. Say again? Oh, so this goes nicely with that, actually. Oh, you're, you're, you completely Cyloned. Uh, maybe let's put Kill all the humans. On. Kill all the uh, humans. Sure? Kill all the humans. <laughs> and now I can't tell if you're doing it on purpose or not. <laughs> uh, still there? Bender, yep. bending Rodriguez? Um, okay. Am I back to normal? You're kind of still... Shall, shall we... Leave the recording running and quickly disconnect Skype and reconnect. Sure. All right. Disconnect. All right. I'll call you back in two seconds. <laughs> oh, <are you> there? <laughs> it's funny because I was doing the same thing and then remembered to stop just before I hit connect. Oh, okay.
I, I was I first did the I Dream of Genie theme, and then I switched to Gilligan's Island for hold music as I was trying to connect to you. <laughs> Are you playing it now? No, that was a uh, that was Stephen Hawking shouting in. <laughs> oh yes, we should have. We you know one of these episodes we should just have uh, Stephen Hawking as a as a guest on the on the podcast because <laughs> how would anyone know it's not really him? Did you know he had one of the first synthesizers? Uh, I mean, I sort of figured, it, you know, he. So basically, you're saying Stephen Hawking is a synthesizer hipster. Yeah. Well, uh, Ray Kurzweil made it for him before he became a crackpot. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, I am catty today. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, there's actually a DJ Hawking who has remixes overdubbed with this, and apparently Stephen Hawking loves it. <laughs> he seems to have a bit of a sense of humor about things. Because, uh, yeah, the guy got all sorts of hate mail, like, how could you? And then he had a letter from Stephen Hawking being like, this is fantastic. This is awesome. Yeah, we should, well, we, we should... should... We should link to him. MC Hawking, my bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, MC Hawking. Well, we should uh, invite Stephen Hawking to come on our podcast. I would love to, Matthew. Uh, <laughs> that, was pretty, that was pretty good. That was my... Uh, I, I'm, I'll just insert uh, Fred the Mac voice saying that later in post-production. I would love to, Matthew. They, they finally did replace his synthesizer, right? Because I know he always complained that the one thing he didn't like about his old synthesized voice was that it had, to the extent that, you know, a robo-voice has it, uh, it had an American accent and not a British accent like his. All right, happy sciencing, folks. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Right, do, we... do I hit stop or record again? I can never remember.